Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today is our second episode in our two-part permaculture series. If you haven't joined us on our last episode, we delved deep into some of the aspects of permaculture and kind of worked up a lot of different problems and kind of you know laid out some of the different aspects of what permaculture brings to the table. In this episode, we go back to our correspondent in the field, Kevin, who is great enough to go out and record all these fantastic sessions where we bring to you some solutions that permaculture actually brings as well. So permaculture has a number of approaches to our global challenges like desertification and brown fields and toxic lands. So that's what we're going to be covering today. And so Kevin is bringing us segments on biochar and soil enhancement, how to improve grasslands through livestock management, how to imagine what our cities could be like if we took nature into account by producing pollinator pathways with the built environment. We're going to talk about social aspects of permaculture again, like we did in the last episode, in looking at the local investment opportunity network that exists in Port Townsend. And we're also going to talk about how local communities are banding together to create structures of governance that really recognize the idea of we the people, that usurp and move past corporate governance to ensure that local rights are taken into consideration. So Kevin, what are we going to be listening to first today? Today in this first segment, we're going to be listening to Maurice Robinette, which actually trained under Alan Savory, who is a specialist in land management strategies that sequester carbon. So with that said, let's get into this first segment. Desertification is probably one of the biggest problems we see on the planet today, and it has a lot to do with overgrazing monoculture. The grasslands are disappearing at a, an incredible rate, and a lot of it is burned off, and it's a big influence on climate change because it puts a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere as, as grasslands get burned off. So this process is trying to address desertification first and foremost. That's kind of how the, the, thing, the, the process got started, the, the, the model. So I'll talk a little bit about the model itself. This model was developed 40 years ago in Zimbabwe. Actually, it was Rhodesia at that point. Alan Savory is the creator of, of, the, of the model, and he came to it. He grew up on a game reserve in uh, Rhodesia, and he, on the game reserve, 
annually there would be huge herds of wildebeest and zebra would come by and then they were adjacent to cattle ranches and he noticed that the grass grew differently on each side of the fence so where the cows were the grass grew up about this high or this high and then it would grow back to this high as the cows chewed it off but the grass on the zebra side grew this high and it was six feet high and he, he scratched his head and he said how can this be what's going on here why doesn't the grass grow the same on both sides of the fence and that really that one simple thing is what led to this whole development of this whole model over a course of 40 years and so the answer to the question is herd density the amount of animals that came by and the timing the amount of time that the plants had to recuperate after they had been severely grazed by these large herds. And by large herds, we're talking a million head. It would take two weeks for the herd to walk by. But where the cows were, there was a set number of animals and they were free to roam on a fixed amount of land. And so they would come by and bite the same plant every few days. And consequently, the plant never grew up any more than a few inches and likewise the root system below the ground could never develop any more than a few inches. When the zebra came by they bit the plants severely and where it was six feet high when they left it maybe it was only a foot high. But then it had six months or a year to recuperate and so it grew back much higher. So that one simple thing is what led to the development of this whole model. So savory was also influenced by the, uh, a previous prime minister of South Africa named Jan Christian Smuts, who developed this co concept of holism. And so Savory had, was a student of this, applied the principles of holism to what he was observing in nature. All of this, the, the zebras, the cows, the game reserve, Smuts' influence on Savory's intellectual understanding of the world, all came together to form the development of the holistic management model. It's the optimal ecosystem enhancement is multi-species grazing. And you can see it in Africa today. And probably parts of Canada where the caribou are. Pro that's probably happening there also. But the important thing here is that there are interconnections between all ecosystem functions. And so as the grass grew up, Saver realized that there was this root system down below and that that root system was holding more water and it was more drought resistant than where the cows were grazing. The ecosystem where the cows were was not nearly as productive as the ecosystem where the zebras were. And so it was man-made management over here where the cows were and no man-made management where the zebra were. So the reason these animals, this large herd, moved is that they were pursued by predators. And this whole relationship is called the predator-prey relationship. And so what it does to the ecosystem is these large animals with a lot of weight on their hooves, because they're large animals, has an impact on the soil. And when you put a lot of them together closely, it has an even bigger impact on the soil and the plant community. And they're grouped closely because there's lions and cheetahs and leopards surrounding the outside of the herd. So this herd is moving and the predator-prey relationship is intact. When we change that, then the ecosystem and the grass communities change also, which is exactly what was happening where the cows were. There were no predators, or the predators were probably were controlled.
they weren't free because the guys were protecting his cattle herd. And they still do that today in Africa. But where there was no human management, the predators were free to be natural. And so they kept this herd on the move. And the herd protected themselves from the predators by staying close together. That's the herd effect to protect from predators is to stay close. So all of this then, in fact, impacts the ground and the way the grass grows. So we can reproduce these same conditions, even though we don't have manageable access to lions and leopards, but we call it electric portable hotwire. And what the idea is, is you eat about a third or a half of the vegetation that's available. You make sure all of it is trampled into contact with the soil. So everything that's there is either in a digestive system of a rumen or made available to the digestive system of a microbe on the soil surface. And what this does is it cycles all of the carbon in this grass that was standing after grazed down to make it available to the microbes. And it's turning out to be a fantastic way to sequester carbon. Savory has applied for the Virgin Earth Challenge. That's Branson, the guy that runs Virgin Records. He's put this challenge together last year to see who can figure out the best way to sequester the most carbon planet-wide. Uh, Savory made the cut for the top 10. There's four biochar competitors in there, and I don't, I don't know what the other, other five were, are. So if, if he wins this, it'll be a big deal, because Branson and a crew of judges will have determined that it's probably one of the best ways to sequester carbon on the planet. I tend to agree with it, not just because I practice it, but if you look at it in terms of availability of land, the low-tech approach doesn't require any technology, hardly, other than a little bit of hot wire. And then it's easy to learn. So it's low capital, easily learned, and can be widespread over uh, many, many acres. He says if we get a, a billion acres under management, then we can uh, reverse climate change. So, Kevin, this is a very interesting concept. Desertification is something I thought that was permanent. I thought it was something that once the desert rolls in, there's no way to reclaim the land, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, that's what actually was amazing to me. And really, it's incredible to think that the ways that we use our land have such a profound effect. We chop down the forest and then it's shrubland and then it's grassland. We graze it until it absolutely can't support life anymore. But it's just interesting that, like he was pointing out, with the zebras versus the cows, nature's actually evolved to work with predators. And when we remove that, that's when we run into the problems that we have now. So it, it, I think it's incredibly exciting that we have these opportunities to, to really address climate change in a way that we've never thought. And, and we've, we're turning problems into actual benefits. So what was really interesting about that segment to me is so many of the approaches that are talked about in climate policy or solutions to address climate change, mitigation strategies, so much of it focuses on high-tech strategies like building more renewable energy generation technologies or 
changing fuel standards for vehicles to reduce the amount of emissions, or even carbon capture sequestration or algal biofuels. A lot of these use technologies and technological development that, as we've discussed on our show, leads to numerous unintended consequences. A great example is, of course, biofuels, which if you've listened to our show, we've covered in multiple interviews. And we know that biofuels is not an energy source. It's an energy sink. And it takes more energy to actually grow the crops than you get out of it. So not only are you sinking energy into it, but think of all the greenhouse gas emissions that you're generating in that whole process. So thinking of land management to sequester carbon is really great. And so I was excited to hear that these kinds of strategies are being considered by big groups like the Carbon War Room with Richard Branson to address climate change. It's very interesting to me how all these new technologies come out and and there's always new and fantastic ways to solve these old problems. It's these new technologies that we've really come to understand lately with new technology and research. It's it's fantastic, the, the new methods that we've been able to come out with. To me, I think it's fantastic that we're going to be able to reclaim desert land and make that into arable land once again. So Kevin, what's our next permaculture approach to global ecological problems that we'll be discussing? Well, Justin, in this next segment, we're going to be hearing about biochar. And I think it's interesting to note that you mentioned the negative energy return on biofuels such as ethanol from corn. While sugarcane might be a bit better, really, we've got a massive amount of biofuels being used as a source of just heat and cooking, as we're going to hear in this next segment. In the future, when there's no more fossil energy, how are we going to feed the masses? Have enough for you and me. So the reality today in the world is that there are in the three billion people every day that cook their meals on three stone open fires. There are 500 million open fires daily that people get their food. From that, conservatively estimated, two million women and children die yearly from smoke-related illnesses. And women, and women and girls are subject to violence because they're the ones that collect the wood. They have to go further and further. And we've got enormous deforestation and environmental impacts that are going on in the developing worlds. I was personally in Tanzania with my friend's father. We were walking. He says, Francesco, where we're standing right now in the 1950s was a forest. It was a desert. It was unbelievable. There are places in, in East Africa where it's like a three-hour trek just to get to wood. Microgasifying stoves, and they are a clean burning gas stove. There are different types of stoves. There are rocket stoves. This talk, this is on gasifier stoves. You can see this in a normal fire. If one were to take a matchstick and light a matchstick, you'll actually watch that it's not the wood that's burning, it's the gases that are being given off. And this is a controlled environment where that's what one is producing. So you're burning the gases, not actually the wood, and what remains is the char. They're clean burning stoves, they generate heat that can be used for cooking or other, and they can use low value biomass fuels. By that I mean they can use twigs, they can use chunks of wood, they pelletize agricultural waste and actually use those pellets as fuels. And 
When used correctly, they produce the heat, and then what one has left over is biochar. And biochar can be used either as a fuel or as a soil enhancer, and at the same time, it sequesters carbon. It's actually pretty phenomenal. Okay, so terra preta is taken from an you know, Amazonian indigenous tribe. You know, they did slash and burn there. They actually didn't just like slash and burn and leave. They created charcoal and, and they incorporated the charcoal and especially the ground up charcoal into the earth and it acts as an iron grabbing thing. So in a climate that, you know, washes right through like down there, it created, you know, amazing soil. So if you put charcoal into soil, it makes your soil magic. So that's a whole thing. And it's also called biochar because it's a way of taking, you know, growing, uh, sequestering carbon and then putting that into in the soil and permanently keeping that carbon out of the atmosphere. The worse the soil is, the better biochar works. If you have really good soil, then you're going to get some improvement. But the worse the soil is, if you've got horrible soil, you can build up better soil that way. I like to call it a microorganism condominium. I mean, all those little critters that we need in good permaculture soil, in any living soil, live in the biochar. Some of the things that they're doing now is really trying to quantify the attributes of char. So that when someone is going out, because this is the beginning of a ridiculously huge business. This is an industry in the making right now. Who knows what, is somebody using treated lumber? You don't know. And so how do you, how do you know what that stream is of what you're getting? And then for different, talk, there's talk out there of designer char. Someone wants to do roses, somebody wants to do grapes, somebody wants to do whatever you want to do. You have different things that you need to do. And so how do you control that? And it's in these controlled processes, more these continuous feed sort of things where you're creating these designer chars or a char that can go in, one that's going to be doing soil reclamation or one that's going to be used for water treatment or sewage treatment. Right now, the University of Colorado, there's a study that just started where they're calling in for biochar that's being produced from around the world because they want to use it for water treatment and sewer treatment. And they're determining what characteristics of char, and they want to document what the fuel stock was, how it was produced so that they can replicate and say, this is what we want to do, what to use to do this. There is someone on the Olympic Peninsula that's using biochar in contamination remediation right now. It will take out hydrocarbons. They're looking at using it in bioswales. This one gentleman is also using it. He uses fungi, microorganisms, in soil remediation of petroleum waste. One of the issues he has, he used to use wood chips and sawdust as the medium to grow the spore and do an in-situ remediation. When he was done, it wasn't contaminated anymore, but the ground could not be used for any building because it had too much organic matter in it, so it wasn't structural, it wasn't structural fill. So he's now working with spore and biochar, different types of biochar and spore that will do their thing, whatever they do, in biochar. And putting that then, biochar inoculated with spores for his remediation, when it's clean, he then has a structural fill. 
there are chicken farms and whatever one's feeling is about chicken farms but they have an enormous ecological disaster with the waste material I know for a fact that they are pelletizing that material running it through a continuous feed these these stoves I have here are batch fed but a continuous feed stove that is then heating the buildings creating biochar as a result and so what used to be a waste material that they can't give away they are now selling as enhanced soil amendment so that's a very interesting talk I always thought that charcoal was something that people used in cooking and who knew it was a carbon sequestration technique as well well that's right Seth you can actually take something that's a carbon-neutral process, but when you actually sequester that last part of it, you can then bury it and it enhances the soil. But I think an important note is you actually have to have a nutrient added to it because it's a nutrient sink at first, and then it gives back. So putting this in your compost pile or using urine to actually activate the charcoal, and that's an important part, activating the charcoal, that's where you can really start getting these enhanced soil amendments. And I think that's incredibly exciting. But I think one big aspect that really surprised me from that was that there's 3 billion people that cook over a three-stone fire. We're not talking fireplaces or stoves. We're talking three-stone open fires that leads to massive deforestation. Now that's crazy, Kevin. Thinking about all those people that are just cooking over, over charcoal isn't mind-blowing thing we in the in the modern world with our ipods and our electric stoves don't even think about how charcoal is used all over the world as a, a very important cooking method it's a very essential part of life in most parts of the world yeah you know we talk so much about the distribution of wealth in society and how you know the one percent has so much wealth but if you think of energy wealth that whole idea of three billion people cooking over a three stone fire is a fantastic metaphor for the energy inequity that exists in our world. And for me, cooking over a three stone fire would be completely unimaginable because I can just go over to my electric range stove and turn it on and I have hydro plants that are generating electricity that are piped over transmission lines to me and I can, you know, cook on the stove. But so many people in the world, three billion, do not have that capability and that's just mind blowing to so many of us in the developed world. Kevin, what else do we have on deck here? Next up, we're going to listen to a segment on fungi and how they actually help purify and maintain our environment. We keep going the way we're going. Oh, we won't be around for much longer. No, no. So instead of running towards a brick wall, why not walk instead and save your head? Fungus, in my opinion, is integral and important to all aspects of life. And the fungi are one of our greatest teachers and one of our most ignored teachers in so many ways about how we can integrate and interrelate with each other and with nature and be more harmonious stewards. But some ideas that have been kind of put out there and that are working is, again, with the mycorrhizal fungi, they help to build up the soil and create resilience, stabilize the plants, stabilize the soil. If we have erosion problems, there's ways to implement them there, like for you know logging roads, clear cuts, you can implement fungi too try to prevent erosion you know if you build 
swales or terraces, you can integrate them into that for a similar purpose, but also to help filter the water. And they create topsoil very fast, the, some of the stronger decomposers. You know, one of the aspects that Paul Samus promotes is going to a clear cut. You know, they're not a great thing, but they are what they are. And when those happen, they have to leave behind these huge piles of slash, which is the branches and leftover garbage that maybe they burn, maybe they don't, and it just sits there for years and years and years. Chip that up, you apply fungi, you're going to create a ton of topsoil in just a few years and hopefully regenerate the forest much faster. So that's one concept. And you can apply that on your home lot if you have some property and you need to cut some trees down or something. Without the fungi, we'd be pile high in trees. There'd be no new soil. You know, they break down dead matter to create fresh soil, create new life. They are the link between life and death in that way and responsible for all land matter life, at least in that way. Mushrooms grow in nature, an incredibly complex environment. They evolved over millions, billions of years. They, were, they habitated the land before plants did. They brought plants onto the land. They're incredibly complex and adaptive. And fungi are solely responsible for 90% of all decomposition in the world. Uh, bacteria play a little role, but pretty much all decomposition is fungi. They're pretty much largely, almost solely responsible for the breakdown of lignin, which is what makes woody plants woody and tough and hard. It's a highly complex chemical, and fungi have evolved to break that down. So on the ecological roles that they play are numerous, but they fall into roughly four categories. Mycorrhizae form symbiotic relationships with plants at a root level. So they essentially extend the root network of plants. The basic point is that they, they wrap around the root tip and extend the network of the plant and in exchange channel water nutrients to the plant and in return get photosynthesized sugars from the plant. So there's a symbiotic exchange. So they've done many, many tests where they've basically proven that like these dug firs will not really grow without their mycorrhizal symbionts. Dug firs are a good example. They can have up to 200 symbionts in their lifetime and over 2,000 species of fungi associate with dug firs. So one-tenth to one-fifth all topsoil is mycelium in a healthy forest. And a really good study with the mycorrhizae, they're considered kind of like the brains or the, the intelligence system of the forest. Um, and one good example of that is they've done a study where they paired up a paper birch with a dug fir, so a coniferous and a deciduous tree, channeled a mycorrhizal fungus between the two of them, clamping onto both the root systems, shaded out the dug fir, and we were able to prove that the mycorrhizal fungus was channeling sugars from the birch to the dug fir to help keep it alive. So there's some sort of sentience, in my opinion, some sort of intelligence, some sort of stewardship of the fungi towards the forest, going beyond its own personal needs or whatever to take care of its own ecosystem. The white elm oyster has been pretty well tested and shown that when it's applied as a living mulch over brassicas in particular, for an unknown reason, it dramatically increases the root ball, the stem length, and the yield of all brassica plants. And it's not that it's a mycorrhizal fungi, and it's not just that it's decomposing the wood and releasing nutrients or something, and, and then it's also releasing CO2 up into the plant by the decomposition. And I think this is serious cutting-edge stuff, just like companion planting with plants, companion planting with mushrooms. It's going to take years to start really figuring out good, good combinations. And if you have any agricultural waste and you don't grow mushrooms on it, you're missing out. So the benefits of growing your own, I think the biggest one in my mind is that it's a cheap year-round food source. If you time it right and you get a rhythm, you can have food all year. You can grow it off your waste. It's a missing link, you know, between our agriculture waste and the compost. You make mushrooms off it first, then throw in the compost or feed it to your red worms. So there's definitely missing missing links in all, of the, in all of our permaculture and just lifestyle steps where I think mushrooms can really be applied and close a lot of loops. Integrate a mushroom and it will 
break that down faster, potentially pop up mushrooms, give you some food, and hopefully like channel nutrients and water and just like be a carbon and water sink for the garden, providing a living mulch essentially. And you can apply this as a living mulch. Maybe you've heard about fungi can clean up pollution. It's pretty cool. Who knew? Well, lots of people knew for a long time, but they never really spent a lot of money to develop it, which is a big bummer, because now we're in this situation where toxins are kind of piling up around us. So as I mentioned, fungi can break down lignin. This is lignin, what makes wood wood and tough compared to like celery, which is mostly cellulose. Wood has lignin, which makes it tough and hard. So this is a crazy complex compound. Mushrooms, certain mushrooms can decompose this, break this down with digestive enzymes, snipping this into like little, little bits, slice, 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 into a bunch of little sugars. Surprisingly enough, turns out you can, mushroom can use those same enzymes to break down other organic carbon-based molecules, such as petroleum products. This is one of a thousand toxic oil pools in the Amazonian, Ecuadorian Amazon jungle, where for 30 years, Texaco Chevron was extracting oil, having tons of spills, just horrible environmental disaster, no regulatory oversight, and they left these toxic pools to sit and it's poisoning groundwater, phenomenal rates of cancer in indigenous communities in the Amazon jungle, and nobody's doing anything about it, except for this group, the Amazon Micro Renewal Project. Pretty cool people. They are volunteers going down there using oyster mushrooms, trying to figure out how to clean up this crazy mess that nobody's looking at. I encourage you to check them out. The Amazon Micro Renewal Project. Super cool. They take volunteers, they have courses, try to get new interns. They go up and down based on funding cycles. They're grant-based. Totally encourage funding them. They're the only thing like this in the world, doing hands-on volunteer effort using fungi to clean up a serious environmental disaster. They can remediate in that way, cleaning up, breaking down so many pollutants, paper mill-like effluent, textile dyes, many, many things. Lots of testing in labs over a few decades has shown that different fungi via different means can break down many, many kinds of compounds, pretty much all petroleum-based products, so your fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, you know, diesel, gasoline, anything petroleum-based almost can be broken down with certain fungi, even things, and then things like dioxins, DDT, Agent Orange-like base particles, things that we thought would never go away, be forever persistent, fungi can break them down. It's pretty cool. They can also sequester heavy metals. Uh, this is a pretty phenomenal thing. Yeah, so a good example of that is outside of Chernobyl, where there was a nuclear reactor meltdown, you know, 30 years ago or something. They're still pulling mushrooms out of the ground around there that are hyper-accumulating the radioactive soil. And what the mycelium does for unknown reasons, it goes to back to the stewardship thing in my mind, it, it takes this, this heavy metals, you know, certain species can do lead, mercury, copper, other ones and basically take it from this whole surrounding environment concentrate it into the mushroom that pops up and if you know to, what you're looking for and what you're getting you can safely dispose of that so for some reason the mushroom concentrates it brings it out of the soil cleans up the soil in that way you can also do that in your water so this is a good reason to not eat mushrooms from the side of the road so even though it theoretically breaks down the petroleum into sugars if there was heavy metals in the in the waste product, the toxin, it can't break down an elemental metal. So that's why you don't want to meet a mushroom from the side of the road or anything polluted in that way. The thing about the remediation, it's kind of controversial in my mind because what's going on is so many universities and biotech companies are intensely investigating. This is like huge money right here, huge, huge money. And it's being intensely investigated in thousands, hundreds of thousands of patents on every finding, every little thing. 
patent it and then it doesn't get developed and it doesn't leave the lab and it, you can't talk about it or you can't like steal somebody's idea and it's very very controversial they can break down chemicals much like the way they can break down wood they can clean up your water get biological contaminants from farm effluent upstream from manure runoff things like that so they're really aggressive fungi plastics wow did a big research thing on the, in the quarter in class plastics are a huge problem in our world filling up our landfills filling up our ocean this one size of texas 30 feet deep it's not, and it's not just like floating plastic bottles, it's microscopic little bits of plastic that have been broken up by the sun and tidal forces and microorganisms, plankton, fish are consuming the stuff, it's going up the food chain, killing albatross that you find their stomachs full of plastics and stuff, it's just crazy. Huge problem, and it's not going anywhere. What do we do? And not only, there's only this one, there's this one, and then there's one in every other ocean in the world. So it's crazy, these are dead zones where tidal currents like kind of cancel out and it just circulates and all this plastic collects. So what are we going to do about this plastic? Well, ever since they made plastic, they wanted to test it against wood and metal and glass that it was meant to replace. So they had to test its durability and longevity. And so they started burying plastic 100 years ago, digging up a couple years later, culture what's going on it. Lo and behold, there's fungi and bacteria breaking it down. They've repeated that process hundreds of times, I don't know, thousands of times around the world, same deal. Hey, it looks like these genera of fungi can break this down pretty well. They've proven that it's the fungi mostly, not the bacteria that are doing it. They can do it pretty well. Technology was never developed. They never had the foresight. Like, maybe we should figure out a way to like develop a technology to get rid of this plastic once it goes into the landfill. Didn't do that. So now it's all piled up. And where are we at? Well, the advancement that came out with the Yale students I mentioned with that endophyte was really cool because instead of burying the plastic and then just culturing what was growing off of it naturally in the environment, which is kind of a permaculture approach, like what's nature gonna do naturally, they took this exterior endophyte that they introduced and it was able to break down this one type of plastic, there's many, many kinds of plastic, but what was so groundbreaking and newsworthy was not only that it was able to do it without oxygen and as its only carbon source, but that they did it with this endophytic fungi, this like interior plant fungi that is like the least explored type of fungus we know nothing about so it just opened this whole bag of worms of like what is up with these like what can they do potentially they're incredibly old have all these metabolic pathways that we have not explored can do all kinds of things all this decomposition stuff i was talking about is mostly with the saprophytic the decomposer fungi they haven't explored this kind of stuff with the endophytic fungi so that's like something to think about if you go to radicalmycology.com, I have a whole paper that I wrote with some other people on there, breaking down like a bunch of research and the kind of what's up with the fungi and potentially fungi and bacteria working symbiotically because that's how they work in nature, breaking down plastics. But I think the solution to the plastics problem is going to be these guys. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. Mycelium and fungi have always been a hobby of mine, and I've always enjoyed growing mushrooms and learning more about mushrooms. I was a member of the Vancouver Mycological Society, and I've always tried to learn more about mushrooms because of those amazing purification properties. That was a really fascinating segment in thinking about how we could use mycelium to purify. That's absolutely right, Justin. I also am a, a mushroom cultivator myself. I've gotten the kits from Whole Foods with the uh, little oyster mushroom packs and sprayed some water on them and had fresh mushrooms growing in my kitchen, which is fantastic. 
if anyone out there has not grown mushrooms, they're probably one of the most easy organisms to grow. Well, that's right. And I think that one of the interesting things that I took away from his talk was that we actually can create medicines from fungi. And that kind of blew me away. I mean, I, I, I understood that they were a very important part of the decay process, but I never knew that they could actually be used as medicines. So I think it's important to know that these are just little segments, highlights of their talks. And I would strongly recommend that you visit our archive and listen to the full talk where you can learn about these topics in much greater depth. So what you're talking about there, Kevin, is all of these talks that you recorded at the Permaculture Convergence Conference, you have made available to the world, our global listening audience, on our website. Well, really, it's through the graciousness of the speakers that we've recorded that we can bring these messages to you. And also to the wonderful hospitality of our audience. It's, it's really through audience donations that made it possible for me to attend this conference and paid for the fees associated with that. So a, a big thank you to, to all of you out there. Yeah, listener-funded radio, citizen journalism at its best, citizens funding other citizens to go out and cover the kinds of things that we want to learn about and hear about that you're not going to see when you turn on the nightly news. That's right. Yeah. So, Kevin, what are we going to listen to next? Well, in this next segment, we're going to be hearing about how our, our built environment is very important because we need to integrate it with nature. And we're going to hear about that in this next segment. Pulling weeds and picking stones Man is made of dreams and bones Feel the need to grow my own Cause the time is close at hand Rain for grain, sun and rain Find my way What I see about roadsides are they connect all the good places in the county. Our parks, our schools, our homes. Anything that's natural and green and alive is connected by a roadside. We don't have to acquire any land to do this. We just need to dedicate our roadsides as pollinator pathways and keep them clean and pure. And then see what's growing there and discover those plants, hopefully mostly natives, and start putting them to use in our own lives. I think it's fascinating to consider the idea of looking at the whole built urban environment and then imagining what it would be like to integrate nature into that once again. And so the whole idea of creating pollinator pathways or looking at roads and thinking, you know, 50 or 100 years out, if we look at the decline of the car and we look at the decline of the motor vehicle and the driving infrastructure, we have these laneways through our cities that we can convert to something that integrates nature back into the places where people live. Well, Justin, I actually think it's really important to note that this is already happening right now with the roadways that we have. They are being used as pollinator pathways. And that's why it's so important that we don't use herbicides on our roadsides. This is where native plants could actually have an opportunity to grow inside of our communities and bring in these vital ecological functions. And I think that's a very important part of really what makes a city functional in a lot of ways. And just can you imagine if on the side of our roads we had growing edible foods, if we could just stop inside the road and pick up an apple or, you know, have a tomato from a plant that's just growing there or, you know, dig up a potato or get some onions on the way home from work. 
That would be a pretty fantastic way to live. You wouldn't have to stop at the supermarket. You could just stop at the roadside. When I think of the idea of pollinator pathways, what comes to mind is just in the middle of roads, you have bike lanes on each side, and then it's just like beautiful rows of bee balm, like all down the middle with big, red, vibrant flowers. And that's what I think of when I, when I imagine pollinator pathways in the future, or now. What about edible yeah. flowers? Yeah, edible flowers are good too. I was just looking at a recipe the other day for hibiscus enchiladas which uh, mm. instead of using meat, they use hibiscus flowers. And that, I can't wait to try it. So at the end <laughs> of this episode, I'm going to try and make some. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so what are we hearing next, Kevin? So in this next segment, we're going to hear about one of the most critical functions of life itself, which is water. In permaculture, we know that water is the most valuable resource. People can talk about, you know, stockpiling gold uh, and stockpiling wealth uh, to deal with global uh, financial collapse. But really, water is gold. Water is the most valuable resource that we can have because without those water flows, we get desertification, as we talked about earlier in this episode. And so, so much of thinking about a landscape in the framework of permaculture is thinking about how that water flows throughout the environment. In my garden I'm as free as that feather thief of inch by inch, row by row. So we can think of the watershed like a tree and it's nature's property boundaries, okay? John Todd, he's an ecological pioneer and he developed the eco-machine or the living machine. He's creating these enclosed wetlands treatment systems. You know, back to the watershed for just a second. Let's think about everything draining down the watershed and manure and all this concentration of nutrients and everything coming down. And there at the bottom of the watershed, the plants we find there, just by their position in the greater landscape, tend to have a capacity to filter materials because that's what they had to evolve to do because of their location within the watershed. So wetlands plants are fairly universally have filtration capacities. It's really the microorganisms and bacteria that live on their roots. So it's not just when the plants are actually actively growing, but it's actually the biology on their roots that really have the capacity to break down pollutants. So John Todd created these systems where he's just like hyper-concentrating diversity of wetlands plants, pumping oxygen in to have really rapid biological processes in there. And so this is for the city of Burlington here. Let's see. So the city of South Burlington, Vermont, built with a grant from the U.S. EPA, the South Burlington Eco Machine demonstrated high performance even in very cold temperatures. On a daily basis, the sewage typically generated by 1,200 residents, 80,000 gallons, was diverted from the city's conventional waste treatment plant to the Eco Machine. And then having water clean enough to put right back into the river. With the help of John Todd's Aqua Restorers trademark, Tyson Foods Incorporated turned their sludge-filled lagoon from their poultry processing facility. Pause there and just visualize like what the sludge from a poultry processing right? Into a thriving ecosystem and compliant wastewater treatment site, aqua restorers were installed to work in collaboration with existing traditional treatment elements. The result was a 95% reduction of contaminants, 70% reduction in energy use, 20% reduction in sludge production, and a discharge that complied with Maryland's open water effluent parameters. With this treatment, to some degree, we're talking about the end of the line 
treatment after we've put toxins in. So on Art Ludwig's thing, he has actually a whole line of detergents that are not just biodegradable, but biocompatible, meaning they break down into elements that are actually beneficial to plant growth. Biodegradable doesn't mean they break down. It might be like, oh, it breaks down into salt and phosphorus. You know, it's like it doesn't mean it breaks down into something that's good for plants. And so, you know, it gets down to aquaculture. And aquaculture is the science, art, and business of cultivating marine or freshwater food. And one thing Bill Mollison said about aquaculture is the stability and productivity of aquaculture systems are superior to the terrestrial culture systems so far developed. Given the same inputs of energy and nutrients, we can expect from 4 to 20 times the yield from water than that from adjoining land. So when we get into tying in like fish production into our permaculture scale systems, we get into potentially incredibly highly productive parts of our water cycle. It's a fairly closed system, and they actually harvest the fish out. It's a place where nature is creating more food and nutrients and biomass. You know, the plants are kind of translating that into greater abundance. I think the thing is, you can do this in a more compact space. When you get into like large-scale systems, you need a lot of land, you need a lot more infrastructure. The greatest aquatic, terrestrial, agricultural system in history that I've come across are the Chinampas in southern Mexico, which many of you may be familiar with, where... You know, they started out there with this swamp in, in the big, you know, Mexico City's in this big bowl. And so the, the bottom of this basin's like very swampy. And so they started out and they're like, oh, here, let's, you know, dig these canals a little deeper and let's take all this mud and reeds and let's pile it up here or build a little raft and, you know, create a little floating area where we're taking muck from the swamp and building up soil. And so over time, you can see them building right here, digging down and building these islands. This is water filled with duckweed or some other floating vegetative material. And you see that they, they basically created these self-irrigating annual or perennial gardens with these canals. The canals, they can raise fish or they could raise, you know, have all different types of frogs or crayfish or different aquatic organisms that they could harvest. And then they periodically clean out these canals and put them on the gardens for fertility. And then you can also use the canals to transport the vegetables around the garden and for transportation. So it's just like, whoa. I mean, it's a self-fertile, fertility-producing, self-watering system. You know, the ideal water is when the ideal is when the water rises up on its own and comes out as like an artesian spring. That's what Victor Schauberger considered to be finished water. And then rainwater is actually, it's distilled water, so it wants to leach things, leach minerals out to become a complete water. And my friend Jack, the reason why he started installing rainwater systems is because his wife had terrible arthritis. And it was from uh, little, you know, mineral spurs in her bones caused by highly mineralized water. And when she switched to rainwater, it leached the minerals out from her and cured her arthritis. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things out of that was that rainwater harvesting actually offers a solution for arthritis. I mean, I, I never imagined that. And I, I was just blown away to think that arthritis can be alleviated through looking at rainwater harvesting uh, to get rid of the mineralization. That just blew me away. Yeah, and it's very interesting that, you know, water 
right now is is not considered a very precious resource. We have a water spigot in our houses that we turn on, right? We don't think about the fact that water in some places is a very, very precious thing. We think about the fruit and the produce that we get from other places and then supermarkets is hold all these fruits and vegetables and those all contain water and they're being shipped from other places and all that water that goes into those fruits and vegetables is being shipped away. So when you're eating a vegetable that comes from Guatemala or Argentina or you know somewhere on the other side of the planet, you're taking not only that vegetable, but you're taking that water as well. So in our hyper-contextualized, speedy information world where tweets and texts and Gmail notifications are just flying at us all the time, it can be difficult to even remember stories from a few years ago. But one that stands out to me is when the city of Atlanta almost ran out of water back in, I think that was like 2007, 2008, somewhere in that range, where they were just literally a week or two away from running out of water. And it really highlighted to me how fragile massive cities are to climate change and desertification. The Atlanta metro has 5.2 million people as of 2010. And if you think about a massive city like that actually running out of water sometime in the next decade or two, as temperatures keep rising, it puts into mind the kind of context that we're dealing with and why water is so important, because it has almost happened uh, where a city like that ran out of water. So in this last segment, we heard about living machines and about dealing with waste and water flows and even the Chiapas. Kevin, could you highlight some of the cool things that you took out of that last segment? In that last segment, what really interested me was John Todd's living machines and using biological systems in order to purify our race. So we do think about the water that comes into our systems, but very rarely do we spend much effort thinking about what leaves our systems. In fact, many parts of the world actually dump sewage right into the local waterways without any treatment whatsoever. In Mexico, for instance, they actually have built modern sewage plants, but the local budgets can't afford the chemicals to process the waste. So they go unused, and then they just dump the sewage right into the waterways. So it's these living machines that don't use chemicals that actually offer us an opportunity to do things using nature with really an appropriate technology basis. And what you're talking about there is using the natural energy and water flows of nature to manage our human populations. And I think back to our episode number 38, where we spoke with Nicole Foss about how in times of austerity and economic contraction, there's so many different processes that can then have problems where suddenly, you know, your water purification plant, the worker who's responsible for purifying the water, you know, he doesn't show up because he just got a 20% cut in his paycheck check and he's angry and then suddenly the water is undrinkable for a week or two and it's knowing about these different permaculture approaches that don't require you know big annual municipal budgets to deal with the way that water is used in a city that could have a huge impact as we move forward in this global economic contraction that we talk about so much on our show and speaking of older episodes, I also remember our interview with Makana, where he was telling us about his aquaponics system, and we just heard about aquaponics again on this last segment. 
Well, that's right. That's what actually astonished me is that Bill Mollison actually knew that these water-based systems, they have a magnitude greater productivity than our land-based systems. And in an upcoming episode, we're going to be covering aquaponics in depth and really realize that the problems that we face right now, we do have an ability to actually handle our food needs in a much more compact, low-energy, and local way. One thing that fascinates me is thinking about energy and water flows in nature. We can potentially even take those ideas and apply them to our financial flows in our communities. And so up next, we're going to be hearing about the Local Investment Opportunities Network in Port Townsend, Washington, is beginning to model that process. Another example of community collaboration is we have an organization called LION, L-I-O-N, Local Investment Opportunities Network. There's at least one LION member in the audience. If you have questions, you might want to talk to Case Kulf tomorrow about it. But LION is a lending network where people take their money out of Wall Street and loan it to local people. So people that have excess funds or a certain amount of wealth agree to support their community development by loaning to startup businesses or businesses that need extra support to expand. We have a local cheese company as a result. We have a farm that's way, way successful because of Lion Loan. We have, I think, a few million dollars in loans right now. And what happens is the people that borrow the money are very invested in paying them back because they have to see the people in the grocery store that they borrowed their money from. And the people that loan the money can tell if the business is suffering. They can go and do business consultation with them, support them, and help them succeed. And it's becoming a model that is going across the nation right now. It's been written up in a couple of books, and people are being asked to consult in other communities. So in thinking about the Local Investment Opportunities Network, here was a guy who went to Wall Street, made some money, and then came back to Port Townsend, Washington and said, how can I actually make an impact in this community instead of extracting wealth and funneling it into the global financial system? And what he did is create this local investment opportunities network where now they're using the resources in the community to fund permaculture, to fund local agriculture, to fund all kinds of cool projects that bring a vibrant, strong, resilient local economy to life. And we're going to be actually talking about the Local Investment Opportunities Network and other examples like it in an upcoming interview we did with Michael Schumann of Cutting Edge Capital. But I think it's just an incredible new way of thought to start applying these permaculture principles to our economic system as well. And so looking at how to build a local and resilient, vibrant economic system has to do with getting past this model of globalized corporate power that exists currently. Because as we see around North America, the expansion of resource extraction transportation with rail for coal and pipelines for oil or tar sands here in Canada, so many communities are experiencing firsthand these last gasp attempts of this economic model that is developed around the idea of fossil fuel extraction and further resource extraction to fuel our model of economic growth. And so 
one of the things we can do as people who respect our communities and the people around us and our environmental quality is begin to work together to resist these developments of fracking and watershed pollution and other local environmental problems that many communities have been experiencing for a long time and many communities are starting to experience for the first time. And so next we're going to be hearing from Paul Cienfuegos on some of the ways that he is enabling local communities to deal with these challenges. The best we ever accomplished is to slow the rate at which things get worse. That's the best that the grandfather of the modern environmental movement in this country said, is to slow the rate at which things get worse. That's not what we need. We are in a growing emergency situation, ecologically, socially, economically. And what Richard Grossman and Poe Clad came to understand back in the early 1990s is that all of those crises are symptoms of corporate constitutional rights. They're all symptoms of allowing the corporate form, which is just a legal entity called a corporation, it's a legal fiction. It's a business structure. That's all it is. And we've given the business structure constitutional rights. So we don't want to give rights to a legal fiction. We don't want to give responsibilities to the legal fiction that already has rights. We want to withdraw its rights. You don't give rights and responsibilities to a chance, right? It's property. Corporations literally are property, if you think about it. You own stock in it. We're giving property rights to property. We're giving free speech rights to property. If we start to think about it in those terms, the absurdity will shift the way that we're acting around what corporations are. Corporations have more contracts rights protection than we do under a clause of the Constitution. This strips corporations of their contract clause rights. If you look at the history of major social change movements, it's always bottom-up organizing. You start locally and you build power up. So what we're doing is a local-based lawmaking effort, and that's phase one. Phase two is that once enough local communities have passed rights-based law, we start challenging state authority to tell local communities they can't do this stuff. We insist on the rewriting of state laws and state constitutions. That's down the road. But that's already happening in Pennsylvania, where 100 towns have already passed these laws. They formed the Pennsylvania Community Rights Network two years ago. If you Google that, you'll get some very interesting material, or you can find it through Seldiff's site, Pennsylvania Community Rights Network. I mean, I've been doing political organizing for 33 years. This is the first strategy I've ever been part of that's actually gaining ground. Everything I've ever been part of, lost. I'm sure most of you have that kind of experience too, right? trying to save a local natural area or or whatever it is. So the work is about figuring out at the town level or the city level or the county level, what is it that we urgently need? What do we want? What do we need for a sustainable society at the local level? What's interesting is this brings up a really much larger, more cosmic question, which is we're all against coal trains but who's prepared to cut their petrochemical use by 90% in the next few years? How many organic food eaters are prepared to stop buying organic food that came from 1,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away? So when you start asking the public to get more involved in rights-based work, 
What happens is we realize we have a level of commitment and responsibility that we've kind of been just letting the power holders deal with. And now we have to start thinking about, well, we're asking for wrenching changes to society. It's not a legal campaign you're building. It's mainly a culture shift campaign. But there are legal steps along the way. And this is not just about environmental and labor protection. This is about everything that we hold dear in this country. This is open to whatever we want to do. People realize that they, through the ballot box, actually did something that succeeded for a change. And you're building, yeah, you're basically building we the people consciousness, right? You're building a consciousness that we actually have self-governing authority. Let's be bolder the next time. This requires legal structure changes to do what we're doing. We're forcing legal structure changes. Now, this is not a new thing. I mean, if you look at the abolitionists and the suffragists, this is what they did. The abolitionists used to burn the Constitution at their rallies because the Constitution enshrined slavery in it. It defined black people as three-fifths of a person in the Constitution. It's there in our current Constitution. So if you think about the right to die with dignity laws in Oregon, if folks are from Oregon, or the medical marijuana laws that have been both passed by citizens directly through the ballot box, they forced changes challenging federal preemption. Right? The federal government claims full jurisdiction on drug policy and law. State voters passed medical marijuana laws. That was a direct frontal assault on federal drug law. The feds are still fighting it. But on the ground, look what we've done. In the last decades, we now have millions and millions of legal medical marijuana smokers and growers, legal, in state law. We've created what's called a crisis of jurisdiction. Unless we actually challenge these legal structures, we never get to the point where citizens expand rights. That's what real movements do. They expand rights. Our environmental laws don't do that. And our labor laws don't do that. They work completely within a business system. Any resident or group of residents within the county shall have legal standing and authority to enforce the provisions of this ordinance in a court. So normally what happens when activist groups pass the kind of law that we care about is we forget about enforcement. And we tend to not have government on our side. We're pushing against government to get these laws in place. We finally get them in place sometimes. And then they're violated immediately. And then we go to government and we start pleading with them to enforce the law they didn't want to pass in the first place. Here we have direct enforcement authority. We the people are the sovereign. We have self-governing authority. Now you do end up in a courtroom again. And so we the people then have to start taking more seriously who we elect into our local and state judge positions. And we don't pay any attention to that. In fact, they're frequently not even statements from the people who are running for county and state judge. So we have to get a lot more engaged. I think we're not engaged because we're convinced we're powerless. It doesn't really matter, so why should I waste my time? Because when I try to get involved, I'm ignored. But what if the opposite were true? We give all the rights and strengths and benefits of our culture to an entity that doesn't really think about the human but only as a commodity and only as a ways to make money and to generate profit for its shareholders and that is something that I believe that we need to re-examine in our culture and it's something that is not really going to benefit humanity in the long term. It seems that we've 
handed over our rights to actually govern and manage our lives to corporations. And this movement is absolutely astonishing that it's actually gaining ground. And that really gets me excited about it. And it is exciting that it's gaining ground, but I always come back to that flip side that Paul Cienfuegos brought up, how many people who want the organic food are going to stop buying it from a thousand miles away and start creating permaculture gardens in their local communities, and how many people who don't want the pipeline are willing to cut their fossil fuel use down 90%. And that really is how our great-grandparents used to live. But it's so different from what we live now that the idea of going back to it really is this collapse theme that we come back to. It's us in the developed world learning to live like how our great-grandparents used to live in many ways and integrating some of the new understandings we've learned through ecological science and through the, the development of methods like permaculture into that. But it's still a huge culture shock for so many people. And so it really is this kind of choice where we have to use the fossil fuel resources that we're endowed with to put them towards a meaningful transformation of this human system and finding this next approach to what it means to be human on this planet. And so that's why we have a few interviews on various topics, of which first is Mark Rabinowitz, and he's talking about this peak choice that we really face. We are the first and probably last culture in the history of the species not to know where our food comes from, where our drinking water comes from, where your poop goes when you flush. Most urban dwellers have no idea where any of those happen. And if you went back in time, even a hundred years, and told people that their descendants would not know these basic facts, it would be incomprehensible. And as the temporary era of fossil fuels go away, our descendants, if any, are not going to have that illusion either. We are so distracted by the consumer bounty that most people don't think about where all this stuff comes from. I highly recommend the Disney Pixar movie WALL-E as a great parable about people being distracted by consumerism to the point they don't realize they lost their own planet. I'm convinced at this point that greenwashing is at least as much a part of a problem as denying ecological problems. It's aimed at different audiences. There's a constituency for denying that there's any environmental problems altogether and it's all just made up nonsense to get government control over red-blooded Americans or red-blooded Canadians for that matter. And the greenwashing works to put a green veneer on products that might be slightly better, but in many cases, you know, in the Northwest, we have green certification for clear cuts. We have green highways. We have putting up renewable energy systems that are really incinerators. In Oregon, we're giving tax breaks and subsidies to companies building incinerators and calling it renewable energy when there's nothing renewable about it. And this is the Democrats doing this, not the Republicans. So maybe one of the most productive ways of shifting the consciousness is the more people know where their stuff comes from and 
learn to at least provide a small amount of their own food and other supplies. I think permaculture needs to transcend the consumer-based culture because permaculture is not about 50 ways to shop for a better planet. It's about creating, producing food. It's not about picking which brand of cornflakes is the ecological one in the grocery store. It's about figuring out how to grow corn and process it and store it for the wintertime to dumb down the description considerably. And permaculture ultimately is a design system that's not just about food. You can apply it to energy. You can apply it to transportation. You can apply it to the way nations function. You can apply it to the way your household functions. You can apply it to the way the planet is structured in terms of the economy and the energy system. For it to reach large-scale acceptance, not only would you need an enormous amount of education at every level about where food comes from, where your energy comes from, how much energy there is to use, and it's time to learn what works and what doesn't work and expand by many orders of magnitude. We have communication systems that can share this knowledge all over the world, cross cultures, cross languages, and we need to rapidly do this as much as possible. And this is being forced by peak oil, peak coal and natural gas, peak minerals, peak everything. So we have more resources now than we've ever had or will ever have again. And it's not just the physical resources of the fossil fuels and the minerals, it's also the technologies, it's the communication systems, and all the other things that we have learned through 150 years of the industrial era, the scientific revolution, modern communications, all sorts of knowledge bases from the traditional to the advanced PhD and everything in between. Unfortunately, we're still stuck in this mindset of competition and warfare and the military-industrial complex, which is counter to the survival of the species. We have an enormous industry for taking care of lawns, which are not very edible. And lawns come from Europe, where to have a large lawn manicured showed that you were incredibly wealthy. You were so rich, you did not have to grow food around your house. It was a sign of the aristocracy. And now it's a middle-class practice. And people don't even think twice about it. The energy we dedicate towards lawns is energy we could dedicate toward food. And this is starting to shift in the U.S. in the last couple of years. The garden industry has had record years of people being interested in growing some food. Certainly not everybody, but a fresh tomato from your garden tastes a lot better than one that was grown two months ago in Florida and preserved and shipped across time zones. Those are not very tasty. And that's not a political opinion. Pretty much everybody will agree with that. But the fast food industry is orders of magnitude bigger than the permaculture world. And it's starting to shift. But at the rate things are going, the oil will be gone before we make the shift completely. And to relocalize food production, to prepare for a lower energy standard of living, one that is not based on collapse but on cooperation, we will need some fossil fuel to do that. So we should use the rest of the fossil fuel wisely to facilitate that relocalization rather than burn it all up on more highways and Walmarts and McDonald's. To prevent the problem is impossible. It's too late for that. To mitigate the problem, there's a lot of things we could do. 
There was a report the U.S. Department of Energy produced in 2005 called the Hirsch Report for the author of the report. It was an, an estimate of what it would take to mitigate the impact economically of peak oil. And he estimated it would take 20 years minimum of aggressive preparation, and he supported using some toxic technologies that we would not approve of, such as coal to liquids and tar sands and the rest. But even if you use those toxic technologies, we would have to prepare for peak 20 years in advance of the peak. And we didn't do that. So now we're starting to get into the economic impact of the end of growth. But even though we're not going to be able to prevent the problem, there's an enormous amount we could do to mitigate it. 30 years ago, we had a president who warned us about the energy crisis and said we had to be more efficient, Jimmy Carter. And he was rejected by most of the society because people didn't want to hear the message. And there were some flaws in the way that he delivered it, which we could discuss some other time. But the bottom line is, he said, the energy crisis is going to be permanent. We have to be more efficient. And that didn't happen. You could go back 50 years. President Kennedy tried to call off the Cold War and end the arms race and convert the military-industrial complex for a more peaceful approach. And that, of course, didn't happen. We could have a discussion about that, too. So we've had many steps along the way. This is also the 50th year of the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which warned about toxic chemicals. And very little has changed about toxic chemicals since 1962, except we produce a lot more of them now than we did then. There's more consciousness about organic farming and least toxic practices, but it's a sideshow. I don't know of any country in the world that has really made a serious effort to phase out these poisons. But I think to be effective at slowing down or mitigating the slow motion crash that's underway, the scale of it would have to be system-wide. As a tiny percent of the population, I don't think it would have much impact at all. It's still mostly at the individual household level. And that's certainly good. I don't want to discourage people from tending to their gardens and becoming better food growers and other tactics to reduce your impact. But to really be effective, it's going to have to be a system-wide shift. Neighborhood, city, bioregion. Cooperation is our survival trait as a species. Because human beings... Our ability to survive is based on our cooperative abilities to share food. If we're going to survive the global mess we have made, it's going to require that we tap into that cooperative ability between neighbors, between people in a region, between countries all over the world. If Canada handles this well and the United States doesn't, how is Canada going to fare? If North America handles it well and China doesn't, we're going to have a war. We're all interconnected. That's the positive lesson of globalization. It's all one planet, and we have a global economy that is incredibly interlinked. And yes, we need to relocalize everywhere, but we're all interdependent, not just for physical resources, but for every other way. And the safety of regions is going to be dependent on all the other regions handling it well. One of the most significant if not the most significant event of the 20th century, was seeing the Earth floating in space. Maybe even more significant than realizing the Earth was a sphere and not the back of a turtle shell. 
And seeing it floating in space, which we've become sort of blasé about, you don't see national boundaries, and you see that the biosphere is just a thin film, only a few kilometers thick, where life can be supported. And whatever we all do has to happen in that narrow film. And once upon a time, we thought the Earth was flat, then we thought the Earth was round, but now we know better. It's constantly getting bigger. And that's the paradigm that the growth model is based on. We have now collided with the limits to endless growth on a finite planet, and this is the root cause of the financial crash that we are experiencing. And now that things are not working well, there's a lot of head-scratching. What is the reason for it? Is it just corporate greed? Is it the liberals don't know how to run things? Is it the 1%? Is it the 47%? And the truth is, we have maxed out the abilities of the planet to keep growing. We have tremendous resources, but we can't keep expanding them. And the promise of permaculture design is we can more efficiently have the different parts of the economy work to support each other rather than destroy each other, which is a oversimplification. But we know how to grow food without destroying soil. We know how to harvest renewable energy without destroying the ice caps and causing cancer. But there's a limit to what it will produce. I like to grow green beans in my garden. I put a green bean in the ground and I get a beautiful green bean plant that's full of green beans. But I don't get an infinite number of green beans. And on a larger scale, this is mimicked in the economy. We have a monetary system that's based on compound interest and endless growth. A different model, a more permaculture approach to economics, would be a steady state economy. And a steady state economy is where the economy is a fixed size. It does not keep getting bigger because the earth does not keep getting bigger. The biological analogy is a old growth forest. And an old growth forest is an amazing place. But it's not just defined by having giant trees in the forest. You have growth and decay in balance in the forest. You have the tall trees, you have the trees that have fallen on the ground that rot and create soil for the next generation of trees. So it's a dynamic place, even if the total size of the forest does not change. And a steady state economy, to be fair, does not exist anywhere in the world. And it would require a complete revamping of the monetary system in ways that would probably make all of us very uncomfortable and poorer in terms of the dollars that we actually have. But it would be more stable, it would be more fair, and it's the type of economy that a renewable energy system could actually provide. Because to live on the solar budget that we get from the sun and the wind, which is a form of solar energy, you can harvest tremendous amounts of energy this way, but there's a limit. You can only use the amount that's created. I have a solar hot water system. It's great, at least for part of the year. But when it's finished heating up the water, that's it. In the winter, I have to cheat and use fossil fuels. But in the summer, I use solar energy to heat the water, and at the end of the day, it's usually hot enough for using. On a larger scale, the amount of solar energy that we're using every year via fossil fuels is about a million years of solar energy per year. And we're mining this like a coal mine, which is a form of solar energy. 
And it was an incredible bounty of nature, but we blew through it really quickly. And now that we're entering the downslope, we are being forced to make changes whether we want to or not. And since, as a species, I guess we love procrastination, this is going to force us to reduce consumption whether we want to or not. And we can do it with anger, or we could think more intelligently about how to be more efficient in the way we're going to use the bounty of the earth. As things get tighter financially, we need to resist the blame game, the temptation to pin it all on some others, because as societies encounter economic stress and collapse, they can get very violent. And there's many examples in history to show that, some in recent history. And that's probably my biggest concern, even more than the demise of the polar ice caps. Because that may happen whether we want it or not. A certain amount of that's going to be forced, even if we completely created ecotopia tomorrow. But it's the social response to these messages and limits that determines how future generations of humans will be able to behave. That is as much of a consciousness shift as probably anything else. We're running out of oil. It's going to be hard to live if we don't find some alternatives to oil. Because pretty much everything we do uses oil. Let me list some of the things made with oil. There's computers, life ups, toothpaste, cat food, dog food, owl food, microwaves, umbrellas, blankets, glasses, crayons, fridges, pharmaceuticals, houses, trucks and boats and planes and clothes and roads and phones and shops and farms and Uranti's underpants. If we don't find a solution, we won't have them anymore. Because pretty soon there will be no more oil. We don't need cars. Well, we didn't in my day. Maybe now. Yeah, so at the end there, Mark was talking about how blame is so much of a problem. And we see with things like the money confiscation in Cyprus and so many people pointing fingers at saying, oh, you know, it's Brussels, it's the EU that's screwing us over, or it's the 1%, or it's the Russians, or whatever it may be, or political leaders, or, you know, the evil oil companies that are doing this. We're all pointing the fingers at people But really, we need to be pointing the fingers at ourselves and at everyone around us and saying, what are we doing to actually transform this thing? Because by just passing the blame around, we're just perpetuating the system. What do you guys think about that? No, it's very true, Justin. And it's it's something that has been ingrained very much into our culture. You look at any of the major media outlets, you look at Fox News, there's always somebody who's in the crosshairs today. You know, is it, is it the left-wing bleeding heart liberal today? Is it the gun control guy tomorrow? It, there's always somebody to blame for our society's problems. On this show, we parody a lot of Alex Jones's reporting, and he is somebody who very much loves to blame people. He is a professional blamer. And to make productive change in society, there needs to be a lot of self-responsibility taking place. 
people standing up and saying, this is the kind of community, this is the kind of world, this is the kind of place I want, I want my children to grow up. This is a place I want my great-grandchildren to grow up. And to be in a, in a world and in an environment that is safe and happy and harmonious and promotes all the kind of things that we've been talking about in this episode and on this show. And I, I think really the amazing thing about this particular time, while there are just so many crises that are going on, is that our understanding of the solutions has grown so much and that really we have an opportunity now to actually create a better life, to envision it and to actually go forward with these permaculture-based strategies. And that's something that we didn't necessarily have 20 or 30 or 40 years ago when I look back at the oil crisis of the 70s and how close we were to really choosing a different path for society and for our energy use. And books like Small is Beautiful were coming out and ideas like those that E.F. Schumacher put forward were really starting to get play and there's so much work on appropriate technology. And then it just seems like we went back to not just business as usual, but business as usual doubled down and corporate mergers and financial expansion and speculative housing bubbles through the 90s. And those were really the last gasps of this global system those few decades. And now we're standing at the precipice of a real moment where we actually do have to find an alternative to our growth and consumption-based lifestyles. It's exciting that even throughout that process, we've been developing ecological science and developing understandings of our world, like what we covered at the beginning of this episode with land management strategies that sequester carbon. That's something we didn't know 50 or 60 years ago that we could have turned to in the 70s. And so now that we have that understanding, we can actually start putting those things into practice. And so next we have a short interview with Joshua, who is a landscape architect that is integrating permaculture into landscape architecture. And he's going to tell us about one of the really cool things that permaculture thinking can provide, which is the idea of food forests. You see, the future of energy is in predominantly biological processes. So be a clean, renewal investor. I would say that the modern consumer paradigm is having some stress fractures appearing in it and that given the state of the economy, a lot of people who are, are not particularly alternative in their worldview are coming to understand the value of increased levels of self-reliance and so that things like victory gardening, which is an old idea from wartime United States mid-20th century, more people are starting to think of that, hey, it's not that hard to grow a few food plants in my garden and that saves me a bunch of money and the food's right there. And then they start to discover that in some ways they can grow better food than the way they can get at a big chain store. So I think in that sense, permaculture is there to fill up the fractures in the rest of the modern paradigm and sort of when that pattern of living is not fulfilling the American dream in the way that it is promised to, that we're starting to create some other options that people can really latch hold of. I would say that that's the way that I see it coming up and coexisting. Now from the top-down level, people like urban planners and landscape architects in some cases, they're trying to change the public spaces and the way that the culture of the general public relates to issues like nature and issues like sustainability and local resiliency and things like that. And so that's something that permaculture can coexist with very well. 
even things like the um, Environmental Protection Agency has been trying to promote low-impact development for about at least about 15 years at this point. And permaculture is extremely compatible with low-impact development because LID is all about infiltrating runoff water on site rather than sending it off down the hill. And so once you have all that water on site, well, there's all kinds of productivity that you can increase with that water. And so permaculture has a way of layering onto other fields of practice and making them a bit more abundant. When we're talking about permanent culture, we're talking about something hopefully that's fairly well established that has its roots in the ground and so it's not going to be something portable and quick and easy use just as an example to have a mature fruit or nut tree really takes about 10 years so if the world collapses tomorrow and you don't have a fruit tree in your yard you don't have a way to step up at that point so there's a certain sense of foreplanning that can be required now, there are a lot of resources that go to waste in our culture, and so permaculture is great at making better use of those. One of the uh, classic sayings of it is the problem is the solution and waste is a resource. So that applies great in urban permaculture where you can find uses for things that otherwise might be trash. It really depends on what scale and in what way you'd want to apply permaculture. You have to consider what's the priority. Is it about the scale of a piece of land and the ecological productiveness of that system? Is that sort of the measure of size and success? Or is it about how many people are being reached by it and how much sort of a cultural education is happening from that project? In that sense of the latter, I've been helping out with the Beacon Food Forest project in Seattle some over the last couple of years. And that's a project where they just started planting their first few trees, but just over the two years of process and media attention, the excitement about this project has gotten out internationally, and perhaps uh, tens of thousands of people have been inspired by the idea of this project and the fact that it's occurring on public land in a major U.S. city. So I think that's one of the most interesting examples that I know of locally at the moment, even though, as I said, they've just barely started planting their first few trees, and it's going to take another 10 years to actually establish the site and the design. One of their biggest assets is just the concept of a food forest, and not just an orchard, but also something that has shrubs and ground covers, and really stacking those layers of functional plants into it. Now, it's hard to say whether food forest is actually a permacultural concept, and that Permaculture has been kind of a hybrid of a lot of systems, and uh, Robert Hart in England developed the idea of food forest probably a little before Bill Mollison in Australia developed the concept of permaculture. It's just they were natural allies. The Beacon Hill people got their idea from taking a permaculture course and were using their student design work from that to start the process. Those graphics were enough to stimulate interest in the area and then they were able to get a grant from the city to hire a design team which specifically put out a call for a landscape architect and a permaculturist. So far as I know that was the first time that that call had been specifically put out on a public project and it was interesting to discover that even in a city as green and progressive as Seattle there wasn't someone who was both the permaculturist and a landscape architect. The following year when they got an even bigger grant to start doing a phase one development, the permaculturist who had helped with that initial conceptual design had stepped away because it was sort of beyond her level of expertise. They started finding that the landscape architect on her own was not quite being permacultural enough in the way that they really wanted the site to be educational and to reflect the principles and demonstrate those things. So they put out another call to bring in 
kind of a permaculture landscape architecture consultant team and that's another place where I was able to plug in and help them figure out to resolve the sort of infrastructural issues of grading and drainage but with a permacultural bent and with a permaculture layer added on. So I'd say that in a lot of cases permaculture is not necessarily about creating something new. A lot of people think about creating some new project that's never happened before. Oftentimes it's a little more practical to take something that's existing and add a few more layers of functionality and abundance to it rather than try to start from scratch. Because permaculture is not so much about the thing in itself as about the interconnections between the whole context. It's essentially an interdisciplinary conceptual methodology, which is to say it's not so much about how you do things as about how you decide what to do and about how you make beneficial connections between all the different things that you do. So it's a great way of linking different fields of practice. For instance, it won't tell you how to build a building. You have to study architecture or building to do that, but it will tell you how to relate the building to the landscape. And it will give you ideas about how to garden, but there's still other sets of knowledge about gardening, about farming that come into play within the permaculture framework. So in that way, you could study agriculture or horticulture or landscape design all of those could become very permacultural. Permaculture, again, provides more like the, the conceptual framework within which these things fit. Alternatively, you could be studying community economics, urban planning, urban design, things like that. Those could happen with a very permacultural mindset. For myself, having at this point a master's in landscape architecture, a lot of that profession is really turning towards ecological design. And in fact, the roots of landscape architecture are very much about preserving beautiful natural systems, the health of the environment, connecting people to that, and cultivating a sense of stewardship and culture. So in that sense, permaculture and landscape architecture share the same kinds of environmental ethics and aims. A lot of urban designers and urban planners at this point are really trying to think about sustainability and local resilience, but that perspective can often be top-down and not very tactical. It's based on things like policy and code change. Permaculture has the same set of thinking but approaches it more often in a very grassroots, bottom-up, tactical kind of perspective. So it sort of gives citizens a way to plug into those larger ideas of sustainability and feel like they have something tangible they can do in their own yard, their own neighborhood. And then it's just a matter of how high they want to push their own level of practice. I think permaculture is great for small livelihoods in that people can create some local abundance for themselves and then for their larger community that can start to make an income. I think at this point it's hard to make a lot of money at permaculture unless you're doing some other professional skill with a permacultural perspective. If you are a trained architect, integrating permaculture into your practice I think can add extra layers of richness to it that hopefully mean a little extra funding here and there or more widespread appreciation. But if we say, oh, things are going to fall apart tomorrow, who's going to survive? I would say the permaculturists probably have a better chance than average, but not necessarily as much as the person with a bunker in their yard and 50 cases of canned food. Hard to say. And for the economic collapse or economic downturn, or however you want to say it, David Holmgren talks a lot about designing a culture of energy descent. So if we admit that the modern dream is not all it was cracked up to be, how do we start to scale down our desires? And permaculture is probably better suited for that kind of thing than just about any other cultural framework that I've heard of in that it encourages people to do more with less, to 
use what they have to regenerate a local surplus and then sort of share that with their community. And so that sense of what the transition town people have talked about building these lifeboat communities. You can set up a little social infrastructure based around local permaculture and about maximizing your local food resources, your local water resources, and that that sort of pod, if you will, can hopefully carry people through a sense of collapse. But again, to develop that, it's not necessarily an overnight process. People sometimes, when faced with a huge crisis, will be suddenly ready to make a major lifestyle change that they weren't before. And in that sense, hopefully, folks who are hit hard by the crash may have some permacultural neighbors who are a little bit better prepared to deal with it. My sense of the way the world is likely to go is that we'll start seeing a little less globalism here and there, though of course some interests are going to fight hard to keep those kinds of patterns going, but that regionalism and localism will come to be more and more strong in the future, and not all parts of the world are going to be equally in trouble. Some are going to be much harder hit than others. Here in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, I think all the resources are in place to develop a fairly sustainable regional culture. It's just a matter of assembling a critical mass. Other parts of the world are not going to be so lucky. Like the sun, see it has heaps of energy, beaming down for free, feeding plants and trees. So Joshua brings up some interesting points about the Pacific Northwest and you know, in my time in the Pacific Northwest, I know you guys live out there, but in my time out in the Pacific Northwest, I found that the attitude there is is one that's kind of lends itself towards these ideas of sustainability. And, you know, the climate too very much is compatible with these ideas of growing lots of edible food and creating sustainable landscapes. It's not everywhere that you can grow the kind of food and, and design the kind of places that permaculture kind of lends itself to. The attitude as well on the West Coast is one that's unique in the United States. I know coming from the East Coast side, there's a lot of conservatism and staunch holding on to beliefs that doesn't always lend itself to open-mindedness and new ideas. But on the West Coast, those kind of ideas have become part of the culture and and reinventing yourself and kind of coming up with new ideas is something that the West Coast is really good at. Vancouver is a, f a fantastic place for that. And that's where you live. Yeah, that's right. And that's actually one of the main reasons I wanted to move up to the Pacific Northwest is because we get a lot of power from hydro here in British Columbia. So we're not generating a lot of carbon emissions with our electricity supply. We're not as susceptible to fuel supply disruptions. And I just remember my days of working at a power plant in North Carolina and just seeing those coal trains coming in and thinking like, wow, they have to do a coal train dump every few seconds to keep the coal supply at a 30-day supply. And all it takes are just a few major disruptions. And suddenly you start reaching territory where you have to cut back on the amount of coal that you're burning. And that has all kinds of cascading effects for the electricity supply. And then talking about what I mentioned earlier with Atlanta and nearly running out of water. And I just remember when I was getting ready to move up here to the Pacific Northwest, it was a year that there was a lot of drought. And I was driving through South Carolina and just seeing like how far the water levels were down and like docks had collapsed because they were so far down. And I was thinking like, this is nothing yet. In 10 or 20 years, 
we're going to wish we had these kind of scenarios because of the level of droughts and crazy weather. And so I was just thinking that here in the Pacific Northwest, like things are definitely going to change and it's not going to be all rosy and easy. But because of the climate, I think that there's a lot of opportunities for growing and for vegetables and for food production that may not exist because of water issues in a lot of other parts of the U.S. in the near future. I took the Amtrak Cascades line down to Portland last month, and it was really exciting to see the Cascadia flag flying out in the river on some of the boats. But it's such a fabulous way of starting to think about this bioregional future that we're going to build as these whole nation state structures just get further and further into debt and lose their legitimacy. And so I'm very excited to be part of the Cascadia region. Yeah, and I live up here as well. And I really think it's the climate that we have up here that provides such a rich opportunity for permaculture. And in that last segment, we heard Joshua talk about the Beacon Hill Food Forest Project. And that's a project that's going into a public park in Seattle, Washington. And there was an amazing presentation given on this at the Convergence, and people were standing and cheering. It was, it was truly inspirational. Unfortunately, I, I can't share that with our audience members due to a technical problem. But really what it comes down to is, in this Cascadia region, we're really helping to bring awareness of permaculture to the public. And another person that's helping bring about this awareness is Nancy from Shambhala Farms on Camino Island. And actually, it was by touring her farm that I learned of the Convergence Conference and was actually able to attend and capture all this great audio for our audience members. So, in this next segment, we're going to hear from Nancy and her thoughts on permaculture. Once again, clean renewal, clean renewal, clean renewal services and resources. It's time to do away with fossil fuels. I think permaculture is not a new concept. It goes all the way back to our Vedic cultures, the beginning of humanity. It's a concept as well as a movement now. The idea of permaculture, we have to be careful about the word creating kind of a secular idea, but in essence it's creating systems that work. That's what permaculture is. All interest groups should be creating systems that work. And so if we get hung up on the word permaculture or somebody feels like that feels like an agenda of some kind or a bias of some kind, we need to make sure to redesign it and call it something else because it's a concept that has to happen. We have to create systems that work. It is so definitively simplistic, but it takes a complex and dedicated effort. In my opinion, the idea of permaculture is available to everyone. It's not a concept that other people need to be evolving into their own groups or interests or idealism. It needs to remain the common. I recommend people when they're, they're like, what's permaculture? What does that word mean? I don't really understand it. Is, it. is it an idea? Is it a thing? Wikipedia has one of the best descriptions for permaculture. Basically, it's, it's creating a self-sufficient system of people living together. 
And if we lose our infrastructure of oil, that's going to be more important than ever. If you study any transition town projects or permacultural agendas, it's about creating sustainable systems before post-peak oil challenges start to happen. It's about creating infrastructure. And if we're in a permacultural environment creating infrastructure that reaches out to our close community and starts paying attention to condensing our errand running and looking at how far away our produce is coming from. We're, we're making those observations in an accountable sense and also in a, in a fiscal sense in, in, in trying to chip away at that outgoing income stream. It's really important that we observe in advance of those structures breaking down how to cooperate. So that's why it's so important. That's why it's so pressing. I would recommend to folks that are maybe kind of in a situation where they have some conversations going, they're talking transition, they're not seeing a lot of action, they're not sure how to move that ahead without, you know, doing an event that takes promotion and so on and so forth, maybe put together a work party related monthly and you'll find an action-oriented agenda that it makes you feel like you're really making a difference. I am a huge proponent for potlucks. I find that when people get around a table and they feed each other, they have miraculous things that happen. They enjoy nourishing each other and then conversation happens. We encourage wine and you know long conversations and we find that that is a much better medium for change. And we also have what we call the Snow Owl Permaculture Network, which we initiated and we meet once a month. And we evolve from kind of a format of kind of instruction, education, to more of a format of a two-hour work party, hands-on what we call barn raising. And we have found that that has been an incredible recipe for change, fun, enjoyment, fulfillment. We all just have a blast because we knock something out progressively from one farm or homeowner's location or site or a school site or whatever it is that somebody might suggest. And then we do a two-hour work party that's kind of pre-arranged so that it's effective and efficient. We knock something out and do something really incredible. And then we have potluck and everybody has a really great time. If we can vision what has to be and we have complete faith that reality is fluid and not fixed, then we'll create the solution. So I don't think all of us have to have the answers to what it should be, but I think we all need to vision what we want it to be. I would like everybody to consider that the process of belief that things can be better is gonna be the most powerful decision you can make. In doing that, you will be able to reach out across traditional agendas and solutions, and that's what I would invite people to do. There's a lot of conversations out there that are proponents for change, but make sure that they are community-based in a sense that people are resourcing one another. So resource networking, in my opinion, will save this planet. So whether you call it permaculture, or you call it Facebook, or you call it Uber localization. There's all sorts of agendas that have the same end, and that's making sure that we're not duplicating what each other is doing, which is the other thing that we've been doing all wrong. If I'm growing apples, you're growing pears, why am I gonna grow pears too? If we're all communicating, why would I wanna compete with my neighbor? But if we're not communicating, I don't even know we're competing until we both have farm stands. It's like, oh shoot, he's got apples, we've got apples. That wasn't very smart and we're both gonna lose. So we need to be having conversations. We need to be cooperative, it's essential. Children understand these concepts when they're born. 
This is the interesting thing. This is my take on that is that we live in a very structured society that has a lot of, I don't want to say an agenda of creating a, a situation where children aren't necessarily believing in their own innate knowledge, their own intuitive knowledge, because really this is about intuitive behavior to a large degree. And I think that's why we're all kind of evolving back to touching stone with systems that work because we're now around systems that don't work. And so we're learning about self-management, self-governance, self-managing you know, behavior and making choices that, may, that our families may not agree in and, or may not have familiarity with. So I think with children that when they're young, if you can believe that they probably already understand this and know this better than we do, it's just when they get to be around 7, 8, 9, 10 and we start telling them that you know, someday when you grow up you might know what you need to know to get by in this world and you'll need to learn all of these things. If you look at children and see how people are drawn to children and their brightness and their, their clear understanding of systems that work, we should be preserving that belief system that children are born with and stop discouraging them that they have so much to learn, which starts to overwhelm them and then they start being disappointed with school processes and losing their joy of learning and so on and so forth because it feels overwhelming and unattainable. With children, I think you have to be careful expecting them to need to learn the concept. We need to stop unlearning them, in my opinion. And I have found that I am unlearning at record pace. That's how I see what I'm doing. I'm unlearning as fast as I possibly can. All of these things that I was told that I would someday understand or, or have a concept or have an intuition or be intuitive or be systemic, we are all those things. We just think that we have to learn them when we are born with those tools. I have a real interest and a desire getting to students before they name college. I have a passion for getting to high school students because of the internships that we've had with college students. What I'm witnessing is that I have a lot of professionals that have degrees, engineers, a variety of people with experience in college degrees and now debt that are finding that they decided that they didn't want to necessarily do what they went to college for. It's not that I'm discouraging people from college, it's just that I think that if high school students have more time with hands and dirt processes and socioeconomic processes that are around growing their own food or learning about food empowerment, they're gonna be able to see that they may have some choices that make more sense to them personally. So I'd love to get to the students before they make choices for college so that they can possibly go into those venues. And then for those in college, the colleges right now are at record speed trying to keep up with the desire for organic and permacultural and whatever the names are, systemic processes that are organic and are uh, collective as a community-based kind of paradigm. So the colleges, if they can be branching out and reaching out to those that have permaculture farms that are open and available, I would encourage them to create those links with their students because they're going to have organic kinesthetic learning opportunities for the college students. And we had a gal from Holyoke come and stay with us last summer and, and she came to us through the ATRA site which is kind of a college student oriented resource network for getting to farms and she came to us with the understanding that she wanted to kind of figure out what her major might be. And so we have kind of an incubator opportunity for students to be involved and, and hands-on and have open reign to try a variety of different things. And, and she did, she was able to kind of isolate what she didn't want, what she was interested in, and she did go back and she transferred actually to a different college that was much more permaculturally inclined in the East Coast. And, 
and she's just having a grand time. She's having a blast. So it is really important for students to be able to get themselves into a processional active living farm, whether it's permacultural or otherwise, if they're interested in growing because they can then start to isolate what that means to them. Because it's really hard for them to envision what piece of that they want to be a party to. And it's a real shame for students to spend a lot of time educating themselves and then finding at the end of the road, like I say with these people that have degrees and such and decide that they want to be farming instead, to find that that's really what they wanted and they spent all of this money and time they could have been kinesthetically or physically learning with, with physical processes. I believe that all processes should be permacultural regardless of what they are because it's a concept of processes being designed for a healthy and self-sufficient community. Gleaning is one of the most permacultural things you could start in your community. Gleaning networks existed for hundreds of generations and they don't exist much anymore and so there's just tons of 40 percent of our food is wasted because there is no infrastructure for using excess efficiently. It's a perishable item, so it's challenging if there aren't networks. So what used to happen is farmers would have harvest, the neighbors would say, hey, I see you're done with your harvest, because they'd pick up the phone. They didn't have computers or expect their farmer to have a computer. they say, hey, I see your harvest is done. Can we come over and get the excess potatoes that are there? And so a group of them would come over and they'd harvest the rest of the potatoes. And think of how much fuel that's saving, because all of them are now not going to the store to buy the packaging that came from Idaho and it's really critical that we start communicating, picking up the phone, uh, riding our bicycle, creating those local networks and reaching out and trying to utilize food efficiently because if we can feed ourselves we'll be successful. I had to come to a place where I realized that I was going to have to give up being afraid and I got to a place where I said okay I will never go hungry and that was my baseline and I've been working from there. So I let go of fear. It doesn't matter what this becomes or what I end up really creating. I definitely have a vision for what I'm doing. But as long as we know that we'll feed ourselves, now you're moving forward without fear. And if we can eliminate fear, then we're making smart and responsible choices. Fear-based decisions are never good ones. So fear is an extremely important part of our culture right now. We see it in the news media. We're told about it. Everywhere we look, anytime you turn on a television radio station, you see another mass shooting, you see a war in Afghanistan, you see a 9-11 style memorial, something commemorating death and loss and just building that fear. You can't open a newspaper without learning about something horrible that's happening in the world. And this kind of builds up and builds up in people and contributes to this kind of isolation that we feel so often in our lives. And this, this fearfulness that just permeates so much of, of our modern day culture. In this last talk, Nancy talks about letting go of this fear. Letting go of this fear can take many different forms, whether it's not reading some of that newspaper media, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's yoga, having some kind of spiritual practice where you can let go of that fear and just let it just go off into the distance or out of your mind. That's an important step in realizing what it means to be human in this time and place and to understand that you are not only part of a small community, but you are also a global citizen. And because of that, you can embrace what it means to be human. That's right. And being human is really about being part of a culture, part of our society, part of a larger humanity. And really, that's what permaculture approaches and addresses. If you think about it, 
permaculture, permanent culture. I really like Nancy's idea that it's about systems that work, because if the systems don't work, it can't produce this permanent culture that we would really like to see. And so I, I think it's really great that we can imagine a future and then create it with our local networks, with the people around us. And we can really learn about these concepts and create a sustainable society and let go of fear and embrace our passions. And that's a theme we keep coming back to on our show with so much of the uncertainty that we see in the world around us. What's really the point of just working for a system that is not permanent and that is crashing all around us, whether it is, you know, wars or the craziness of realizing that the wealth you have saved in the bank is either slowly being burned away through quantitative easing or can just be taken from you at, at any minute. Why amass all that wealth in the first place? You know, work for other values, like the things that you're really passionate about and the people you care about. And so I hope that's something that comes through in our interviews. But I think that's something that when we were just hearing from Nancy, that really came back to my mind again. We have so much tremendous potential right now, and it really depends on the choices that we make. What we do actually makes a difference, and we have to figure out what we want to aim for and make those choices to get there. And I think that that's what really excites me about this show. In this show, we have the opportunity to change the narrative, to hear new ideas and, and new concepts that help us develop this new worldview that we need to move beyond this industrial era that we're currently in. And the great thing is with technology, we can actually share this information globally, and then we can turn around and integrate it locally. That's what we're going to keep doing here on The Extra Environmentalist, and that's why we're really fortunate to have you as a correspondent, Kevin, to keep bringing us amazing conference coverage like the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence so if you are learning about anything that has to do with topics we cover on our show, or you hear of something that you think we should cover on our show, pitch to us. Let us know, and we would be glad to talk to you about ways that you could also be a correspondent and work with you on how we can actually get some of the ideas that you think should be voiced to our global listening audience on our show. That's absolutely right. We embrace all sorts of media and all sorts of correspondence from around the world. So if you have an idea, let us know. We'll get you on the show and you can be just like Kevin. Well, that's right, Seth. But I want to remind our listeners that this conversation doesn't have to end here. If what you've heard today really interests you, I strongly urge you to visit our archive and listen to the full-length recordings of these talks. They're absolutely incredible, and we've only just touched the amazing depth that was brought in this Convergence Conference. I really enjoyed covering this as a correspondent for the Extra Environmentalist, and on a personal note, I must admit that I'm very excited about our growing audience. I know that many of our listeners out there may find themselves alone and somewhat separated in their ideas and thoughts and opinions from those around them. But I think it's important to realize that everyone that's listening right now is actually part of a new emerging community that's beginning to understand the truth about nature, of our character, and, and our quality of life. And I think that as we begin to understand that the systems that we currently have that don't work, 
that are just breaking down, that we have a way forward that can lead to a much better world. So, I really applaud you for making effort to seek out these new viewpoints. And I really believe that it's the people that are listening to these shows that are going to be part of that population that's going to make this transition consciously. And that we're going to rise with the occasion and begin to share a different story and engage with that story with those around us. Indeed, it's through our collective story that we can create a new world. Exactly. Well, thanks again for joining us, Kevin, and capturing all of this incredible media. And we encourage you, our listeners, to check out our website and find the archive of all the lectures and sessions that Kevin has recorded at the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence. It's the end of oil. Joe, how was the weekend? Oh, you know, it was great. Hard to be back at work, man. What do you mean? Why wouldn't you want to be at work? Well, sometimes it just gets so hard for me to get up every day and put in eight hours, and then I sit in this cube where I just die on the inside. I have a huge spiritual void inside of my my soul, and, and everyone just talks about the stupid hockey game all day long. Do you ever feel like you need to work less? Uh, wow, Joe, you sound uh, pretty bitter. I was just going to ask how you liked the hockey game last night. Joe, where are you going? Why are you, why are you punching the cop here? Oh my god, don't. Oh, wow. Joe, you do realize the importance of working hard and keeping our economy growing, right? We need to keep consuming, otherwise the economy will fall apart. Do you think that there's more to life than working every day? Because I do. You really shouldn't talk that way around the office, Joe. So, whatever you do, make sure you don't vote for the Work Less Party this May in the British Columbia elections. That would be a disaster. That's right. I need to keep drawing that paycheck on this dead-end job that just destroys my soul. And once again, thanks to Kevin for doing such a comprehensive job of covering the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence. This closes out our two-episode look at all the content coming out of that conference, but that is not the end of the coverage of the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Convergence because Kevin also mind-bendingly somehow warped time and got microphones in almost all of the sessions there at the conference and actually recorded the full lectures. And so what we're going to do is start putting up all of those lectures on our site and on our SoundCloud page over the coming weeks, over the next few months. And so initially we thought, well, why not put all the episodes why not put all the lectures up at once? And in talking to Chris, who's been doing such a great job as our web genie, he actually looked at our bandwidth numbers and it quite possibly could crash the site if we put all of those up at once as well as a new episode because of all the bandwidth we're pulling. And um, that just speaks to how 
quickly our audience has been expanding and uh, the breadth and depth of our reach. And Seth, we just recently hit a big milestone in terms of downloads of our show. That's right, Justin. And once again, Kevin has the magical ability to warp space and time between different sessions that are running concurrently. I just wanted to shout out big thanks to Kevin. Big, big thanks. So Justin, that's a huge, huge number that we reached. And actually, we we got to this number a lot faster than we got to our last number. So this is we're talking about total downloads of episodes on the site. And what we actually have, have hit is 300,000 downloads of all episodes on this site, which is enormous number. And I think it took us something like 40 episodes to reach 200,000 downloads. And this the last 100,000 has come so very quickly. And that really doesn't even factor in all of our listeners on Stitcher and on SoundCloud and on our radio affiliates. So we could not be happier that so many people are really engaging with the ideas that we're looking to share and with the kind of dialogue that we're hoping to put out into the world. And we couldn't have done it without all you out there listening to us and supporting us and giving us your undying listener listening attention and going and talking to your friends and family about not only the show but the ideas that we're sharing in the show and that's really the important part if in five or ten years no one even knows that the extra environmentalist ever existed or ever occurred it won't matter if these ideas that we're sharing are getting out into the world and really being discussed because there's no way to really address our sustainability challenges if these aren't the topics at dinner tables and bars and lounges and street corners around the world where just everybody's like, yeah, we really got to do something about this. And so that's what we're hoping to facilitate. And so one thing that we just recently facilitated was the new economy summit here in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Seth, you came up here, shot some amazing video, live streamed a lot of the sessions, but it was incredible to have between 300, 350 people out to have this kind of dialogue and discussion. And it was really exciting because it definitely gives us a blueprint for some of the things that we hope to do in the future with video and coverage of this area. And so I just wanted to play a a few short clips of the kind of conversations that we had at this new economy summit here in Vancouver. And nobody's ever accused me of being an optimist, not ever, (laughs) you know. And so I didn't know what to think of this, you know. But um, I mean, he may be right. After all, I did cite a lot of the down figures, you know, of uh, the downside of it, factories closing and so on and so forth. The question is, and I don't have a crystal ball, how that's going to shake out 50 years from now when we look back. This actually may may be the cutting edge of a new kind of socioeconomic formation. Um, The United States can't do it. It's just too wedded to this American dream. And in the face of it going down the drain, the denial is fantastic, as Paul Krugman has pointed out. It doesn't matter what the stats are. I mean, the vision is like this. And that's all these people here. It's the construction of lifeboats. Uh, We're all victims of the sinking Titanic, but all around us on the planet are the emergence of groups of people who have decided to bypass the mainstream and to begin to build these lifeboats, which will give them the skills and the opportunities and the resources and the comradeships and the community uh, that will get them through uh, the crisis when the crisis comes, as I rather think it will. And I, I think we have to keep this very firmly in mind. 
What we talk about as the economy is only that which is measured through market exchange in monetary terms. Most of the work done in the economy that adds value to our lives is not even acknowledged as having value. What is the value, just to pick up on one thing Ellie mentioned, of pollination? What would it cost if we had to go around with little paintbrushes pollinating every flower and bud that's needed to produce the food that is produced by us, or by our agriculture? I needn't belabor this. The point of the matter is that if you were to add up all of the values contributed by ecosystem services of that kind, the unpaid work of women and others in our communities, it would vastly exceed, by an order of magnitude, the value of what we call the economy as measured by our trivial activities uh, in the so-called formal economy. And, you know, the real economy is 60 trillion, uh, but, you know, the casino economy that's being talked about is now estimated to be 700 trillion, and look at the shadow it's creating over the rest of us. Uh -huh. And actually, to go to this ownership question, that 0.001% owns 30% of the wealth in the world, and 7 billion of us own 19%. So, you know, this is part of the process, and it's become much worse in the last 45 years of, uh, of the free market ideological uh, frame that uh, became part of Thatcher and Reagan and the, and the rentship. So compound interest is really, you know, I want to talk about uh, because uh, most of us don't realize how hugely important this is. When you think of compound interest in debt, this is German research, 35 cents of every dollar in the supply chain going across that economy is the result of compound interest compounding on compounding. And what we have is a wealth transfer going on every day of 600 million euro from the bottom 80% to the top 10%. It's amazing. We humans crave meaning and purpose. This leads us to place great stock in shared cultural stories that lend purpose, meaning, and direction to our lives and relationships. Political demagogues have long recognized that those who control these stories control the society. And during the 20th century, advertisers became masters of the arts of cultural manipulation to create an individualistic culture of profligate material consumption that serves well the interests of the financial oligarchy, but now threatens the survival of us all. Of our many influential cultural stories, the most important are those that define what we hold to be sacred. And I use that term in the sense of being entitled to reverence or respect those things that are most fundamental, most essential. When we get the sacred story wrong, we entangle ourselves in a collective web of self-destruction, even suicidal self-deception, as our current situation demonstrates. Fortunately, the new communications technologies that now connect nearly every person in the world into a net of communication Make it possible for the first time in human history to rethink and choose as a species the stories by which we will live together in a shrinking and interdependent world. And to do that shift, to make that shift with extraordinary speed. It is thus within our means to change the human course as a conscious collective 
human choice and to do it at a speed that would be historically unimaginable. If you want to hear more of the New Economy Summit from UBC campus, check out extraenvironmentalist.com where you can see full versions of some of the lectures that we had there in full HD. And as you've noticed with our last two episodes and with our degrowth episode that we used to kick off 2013, we've been doing a lot of conference coverage recently. And so that's led to some changes in the format of our show. But don't worry, if you like the format of our show where we're going through big, uh, long interviews with people and really diving into ideas, we've got plenty of those coming up in the very near future because we have just been recording interviews like crazy over the last few months and because of all these conferences we haven't been able to even put out those interviews yet so get ready there's some really great stuff there and the format of our show is always evolving always changing and always making sure that we're staying on top of whatever serves uh, getting that content out there and so be sure to check out our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash extra environmentalist. That's soundcloud.com slash extra environmentalist for all of these lectures that Kevin has recorded coming up. And we're going to be taking Paul Cienfuegos, who you heard in this episode speaking about uh, corporate rights and corporate power and how communities can start uh, limiting that. Um, that's going to be the first lecture that we're throwing up. And our goal is to put one of these out a week, hopefully every Thursday. So be sure to check our Facebook page or SoundCloud page um, and our website where we're going to start putting those up. That's right. So check back in for Permaculture Thursdays. And what's really neat about the SoundCloud page is you can actually take these lectures and put them on your friend's Facebook wall or send them to your grandmother in Nova Scotia and she can listen to it right from her email or right from your friend's Facebook wall. It's very, very convenient to pass stuff around. And like Justin said, these ideas spread like a virus and you are the carriers that we very much need to help with passing these things on. Before we get into a little bit of listener feedback and also some great voicemails we've received, I just wanted to give everyone a heads up that um, Seth is heading down to OneSpark in Jacksonville, a crowdfunding competition where people vote on funding citizen-powered ideas and media. I will be down in Jacksonville, Florida from the 17th to the 21st of April of 2013. Would love for anyone in that area to come, to come to the conference, to come register to vote. It's going to be a fantastic time. There's going to be all sorts of innovators, all sorts of people talking about big ideas, not necessarily of the kind that we talk about on the show, but all sorts. You know, if you're into into music, if you're into uh, what the latest widget is, they, they are all going to be there pitching their ideas. So we need you guys to come out in force for the Extra Environmentalist Registered Vote and give us your vote because there is a $250,000 pot that is available for each of the votes that you cast. So if you, whatever percentage that the extra environmentalist gets of the vote, that's how much the percentage of the pot that we might be eligible for. And that money will be going towards making the site even better, to making the videos that you put out and the audio that we put out even better and making making it available on a more regular basis. And so I am going to be at a uh, climate and energy decision-making conference in Pittsburgh coming up later in May. 
as well as the Ecological Economics and Biophysical Economics Conference in early June in Vermont, as well as a conference with the New Economics Institute at the end of July. And so it's going to be an East Coast summer for me. I'm excited to be traveling up and down the East Coast. And so if you are in any of those areas in May, June, or July, give us a shout out. Let me know if you're going to be in in Vermont or uh, in New York or in Pittsburgh. And we can definitely go out for a beer and meet up. And one other note about the summer, I'm also going to be a teaching assistant on a massive online open course on Coursera about climate conversations. And so this is a really innovative class that is trying to get people up to the level of knowledge where they can discuss climate change uh, at an intelligent level in their communities. And so the great thing about Coursera is that it's free. You can sign up. We're going to be doing a lot of fun things with the video and with the audio. And even one of our assignments is probably going to be getting uh, the more than 10,000 people we have registered for the class around the world um, to actually share stories about how climate change is affecting their communities. And we're going to have this big global map of all the audio and video um, that all of our students are generating. And it's just really going to be incredible to be a part of this because we've never tried anything like this before, um, and it would be a lot of fun. And so this is going on through the University of British Columbia, and because of all the media work um, that I've been doing and that we've been doing on the show, um, it's something that I'm excited to be involved in and try some of our extra environmentalist approaches out um, on something like Coursera, which is an idea that we're going to be pitching at OneSpark. So maybe we'll be doing some more stuff like this, more focused on the show in the near future. That's an absolutely amazing opportunity that Justin's going to be a part of. And you too get to be a part of that because you listen to the Extra Environmentalist show. And so hopefully you've been noticing how the quality and content of our show has been progressing and improving. And that is thanks to the amazing donations of our listeners. And I've just been blown away at the level of support we get, even though the production of our, our show has just slowed down so much because of this conference planning and all these crazy things that have been going on outside of the podcasting world. We have Terry from Brooklyn who sent us a, a nice donation. So thank you so very much, Terry. Ian from New South Wales in Australia. Thank you for your unbelievably generous donation. Yeah, big thank you to Ian. Also, we have Anton, who uh, is from the Newosphere as well, sent us a, a fantastic donation. Um, thank you very much, Anton. And also Bjorn in Sweden, in Stockholm, Sweden. Thank you for your donation. And the really exciting thing about this round of donations is that these will be the first extra environmentalist supporters to receive our brand new stickers. Yes, we, these stickers are fantastic. They are die cut, really nice. Put them on your, your shovels, your um, farm equipment, your guitars, your... Uh, your refrigerator, any anywhere that you can put a, uh, a really nice sticker that other people will see. This is a perfect place to show your extra environmental support. And these people are going to be the first recipients of these fantastic stickers. They look great on street corners and anywhere you're walking, just throw them up. And they, they're just great for decorating a city. Yeah, and I know that I will be putting them all over my city. And people will be like, what's this extra environmentalist thing? Oh, I don't know, but it looks cool. <laughs> 
and some of the people who have checked out our extraenvironmentalist.com website recently may have noticed how we've thrown up a Bitcoin donation option. And that's because Bitcoin is attracting a ton of attention recently. And if you want to send us, you know, one thousandth of a Bitcoin or one hundredth of a Bitcoin or a whole Bitcoin, feel free to do so because as you know about the money system, it is a crazy world of banking out there. And despite all the problems that Bitcoin has and the ideas of scarcity that it's based on, it definitely has some advantages in dealing with that. And one person who sent us uh, some Bitcoin recently was Danny down in Louisiana, who also has a great song for us. Yo, 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 this is Billy by the way, I'm kicking it, telling you I want to sing a song today. Oh, boom, boom. If you want to be an extra environmentalist, you can't sit on your hands and be sad and be pissed. No, you gotta, gotta take an outsider's view and hang out with your, out with your extraterrestrial crew and get the boom, boom, problem solved, boom, boom, problem solved, boom, boom, problem solved, permaculture way, problem solved, problem solved, permaculture way. That's talking about storing your resources in soil fertility, Sending out bitcoins to the ones that bring you fragility and you know your ability. I'm getting silly, y'all. So I I'm gonna leave now. But uh, I was just gonna say I pushed y'all some uh, some bitcoins after the after the bubble crash. Um, but you know that's just market volatility for you. And if everyone in Cyprus dumps all the cash into bitcoins, you know that uh, that one bitcoin I sent you probably is gonna be worth a whole lot more tomorrow okay y'all take it easy keep it real peace so thank you so much for that for that song danny that was fantastic man i really liked it i was played it out loud in the car for a whole carload of people and they were all jamming to it it was fantastic great work if anyone else wants to compose original extra environmentalist music like this or remix Danny's music. I mean, feel free to download it, make it into something amazing, upload it. We'll definitely put it on the show because listener supported music is the best. Hey guys, this is Will. I live in North Georgia, United States. I just started listening two days ago. My brother recommended that I listen to you guys and you're preaching to the choir. I guess you're putting words to the thoughts I've been having for a long time. Anyhow, I just listened to the degrowth episode, and um, it's inspiring because I'm unemployed and trying to employ myself, and hopefully it pays off in the future, whereas I won't be dependent on some large company to give me my work and that I can depend on myself and my own two hands. Anyhow, I hope the rest of the world starts listening to you and and takes everything that you say to heart. Thanks. So thank you so much for that voicemail, Will. And again, you can see the power of what it is like when your family member recommends a piece of media to you. And just, just you know, getting media from a friend or, uh, you know, somebody that's close to you that really appreciate, that you really appreciate and respect can go a long way. And it's he's absolutely right. Making things with your own hands is a fantastic, fantastic uh, experience. And, you know, creating something from nothing is something that's a very basic human uh, skill and ability. And it's something that makes you feel really, really good. So he's right on track with what he's saying. And I really appreciate the, the fantastic flavor of smell. Seth and Justin, I'm such a regular fan and... Um so I just got this idea. It's about Bruce Coburn, right? 
So I've been listening to Bruce Coburn for the longest time, and these lyrics keep coming into my head. Burn, baby, burn. When am I going to get my turn? So, like, where does he get the privilege? That's what irritates me, and I'm of his era. I was a kid when he was a kid. I grew up with his music, and he taught me something about burn, baby, burn. When am I going to get my turn? It's like um, the the I think it was about the L.A. riots when he was singing that. So he's going like I'm sitting in Ottawa, Canada, and I want a turn to have some riotous action too. But his You know, he was of a different, he was privileged. And the people that were making the riots in L.A., they weren't privileged. So I'd really like it if you could, guys could figure out some way to address that. So I love you guys. Keep doing your thing. And uh, KMO and all the good stuff. And Terrence McKenna, my absolute favorite. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you so much for that really meaningful voicemail. We really enjoy hearing the perspectives of um, of people who have lived a lot more years than we have and have been able to connect with the show in a meaningful way. And the uh, the sentiment that you expressed in there, that burn, baby, burn, when are we going to get our turn? I think that's a sentiment that a lot of people are feeling right now. It's something that kind of comes up when you when you feel in the inadequacies a lot of times that ha- are are occurring around the, the globe. And when you see the injustices that are that are happening right in your own country. And I think that this is an important thing to realize and it's an important sentiment to capture. And I think it's really important that you that you brought that up and it's I really appreciate you calling into the show. Yeah, and it's a it's a really important feeling to acknowledge and understand. And because of those injustices that you were just talking about, Seth, I think so many people in our world have this kind of like bubbling discontent that is just growing and building. And so you see the austerity riots in countries like Portugal and Spain, and they just keep growing and getting bigger. And I keep seeing all of these images of actions in South American countries, too, where it's just like, thousands and tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people are gathering in the streets protesting the the absolute injustices that are being uh you know uh, perpetrated on on the populations and i remember reading earlier this year that on one day in portugal for one of the austerity protests 10 percent of portugal's population was out in the streets Think about that, what it means for a country like Canada with 33 million people, you know, 3.3 million people out in the streets, or wow. a country like the United States, if 30 million people got out on the streets on one Saturday and protested. Um that's really starting to show uh, the level of discontent that people have with society. And maybe we will get to a point where 10% of the U.S. population is out on the streets in the next few years. And it's certainly possible. And we're going to be talking about things li- like that in some of our upcoming interviews with people like Rick Wolf. Um, but also the question is, how do you f- how do you channel that discontent into meaningful action as opposed to uh, just going crazy for the sake of fulfilling that discontent? Um, in a non-constructive way, in a destructive way. And so hopefully some of the things that we've been covering on these last two episodes about permaculture can give some ideas and some structure to meaningful actions that people can take in rebuilding their communities. But there will be times when we do
do need to gather in mass and protest the system and push for a meaningful alternative to the consumer capitalist model. And those times are coming. They're already here in a lot of countries. And I think that over as the system continues to break down in North America, too, um, there's going to be definitely some opportunities to get out there and to protest and and really show um, our discontent. Um, so we'll, we'll see how those opportunities develop in the coming years. We have one more voicemail from our favorite farm correspondent out in the fields, quasi-periodic, writing in from his tractor once again. Hey guys, it's quasi-periodic. Lately, I just can't get over my frustration with this idea of degrowth. You know, as a permaculturalist of almost 15 years now, degrowth isn't something you see in the natural world. You see catastrophic collapse, that does happen, but evolution means transcending boundaries. Life runs into a limit, resource limit, terrain limit, and then it finds a way around it. That's what happens. These catastrophic collapses do happen, but, you know, degrowth, gentle meandering degrowth, that isn't in nature. There's no model for that. That doesn't happen. So what I see as the former techno-utopian, techno-triumphalist, when my culture ran out of options for me, instead of looking backward, I look forward. And we are closer every day, closer than ever, to actually being able to harness the resources of the cosmos. There was someone in your last episode that said, where else are you going to live but to Earth? Well, actually, we live in the universe. We live on the planet. And, yeah, I'm as aware as anyone of how hostile deep space is to the human life form, or most life forms with the possible exception of mushroom spores. But there are endless resources out there. And I'm not talking about titanium. I'm not even talking about complex hydrocarbons and asteroids. Sunlight, electricity, transmitting electricity from space to the planet's surface via microwaves from what I've been led to understand is quite simple. Actual, effectively infinite electricity, you know, it doesn't solve the, it doesn't solve climate change, but it gives us a lot more wiggle room. As much as I love living on this planet, I, the planet is our paradise, but it is our womb. And like McKenna said in a recent, in a talk recently on the psychedelic salon, we're in this transcendent space of leaving the womb, and that has to happen. That happens or else the mother and the child die. It, it's such a perfect metaphor Degrowth, it just shows a total lack of imagination to me. A lack of, under, a lack of understanding of natural systems. Degrowth doesn't happen. Degrowth is expecting humans to act like no other species ever has. Work with the natural system. Transcend the limit. I don't want to move to Mars, but I don't want to enter into a, a stasis where evolution is supposed to stop and we're supposed to become less. I want to keep expanding like life does. Life expands. Life runs into limits. It brute forces the problems based of all the possibilities, and then it finds, breaks through and it finds a new way to expand. Growth is what life is. People keep acting like that's a bad thing. I don't get it. Things could certainly be better, obviously, but we're growing, and we've got to keep growing. I mean, yes, the possibilities are so endless. We're going to stop now? We're going to turn back now? Yeah, it's scary, but, you know, so was England before... Colonists started moving places. You can't just curl up and hide. I look at my fields and I look at these perennial vegetables and I see exponential growth. That's what they do. That's what they're best at. That's what they've self-selected for. We don't need to be working against that. 
that's a, that's a good thing. It's just going to take a little extra creativity. All right, guys. Peace. So thanks for being our continued correspondent in the field and letting us know that there are a lot of things growing out there in your field, quasi-periodic, and in the world, uh, plant-wise and uh, system-wise. And I can totally understand the discomfort with that idea of degrowth that we need to degrow. And I also completely agree with you that it's not something that we see in society. And it's not something that we see in nature, um, the idea of degrowth. But I think it comes back to that whole notion of whether we actually are an intelligent species or not. Can we actually make a conscious decision to look at what the growth of the human system has been doing to the planet and say, we actually need to find an alternative and do something differently? And so even though the future has infinite opportunities for psychological and spiritual human growth, material growth has truly reached its limits. And it's going to go on for years yet, and it's going to be in the mind of our species probably for several more decades. But unless we change the course, and unless more of us start embracing alternatives to material growth, we're going to end up like we're on another planet, like Venus, because this whole place is going to end up looking just like a giant greenhouse. And that doesn't even mention the problems of peak oil. And and not only can we not meet what we think we need in terms of carrying capacity on the planet, but we've also degraded our planet's carrying capacity. And so we actually need to shrink below where we used to be able to maintain our human population. And so you mentioned getting out into the cosmos. And I think there's ways to do that if you know about Dennis and Terrence McKenna and their work of doing that without having to burn hundreds and hundreds of thousands of gallons of rocket fuel uh, to launch a, a giant uh, you know, a steel spaceship into, uh, into space, uh, through the atmosphere and into space. And so I think that when it comes to exploration um, that's one of the things that um, will uh, will definitely be involved in the future. And if you really think about the whole energy return on energy invested of launching something up and mining an asteroid just to get the non-renewable resources that we have sequestered in the hundreds of millions of iPhones around the planet, I just don't see that as an equation that really works out or makes a lot of sense. Um, but if you look at the logo of our show and of our uh, website, it is a spaceman that has the little uh, you know circle in the middle with roots growing out of it. And that goes back to the idea of Spaceship Earth that people like Kenneth Boulding helped to pioneer or that Buckminster Fuller helped to pioneer. And that's because we really are traveling through space. We're on a spaceship. And unless we start building the idea of a spaceman economy where each of us realize that there is no easy escape to another planet, um, then we're going to have to have a hell of a lot more of an imagination than we need already. Um, because uh, degrowth really is about something that doesn't occur in nature, uh, which is avoiding a brutal collapse. And that's what happens to most populations and species that go into overshoot is they do experience a, a rapid die off. And you 
look at those examples of the reindeer on uh, on the island off the coast of uh, British Columbia, where you know they shoot up really high in population and then within one winter can just disappear. And I think that humans are far too adaptive to experience that kind of rapid die-off so quickly. But if you look at the period of several decades, um, it's definitely possible. And there can be a lot of human misery and suffering in the process. And so while it rubs up against so many of our ideas of progress and growth, the degrowth idea has a lot of elements that are going to be very important in the future. And so I know that it is just uncomfortable, but it also requires an unbelievable amount of imagination to be able to reach that. What permaculture for me kind of brings up in my mind is the idea and the the is the idea of being caretakers of this planet are we here to exploit resources and to use up all of the, the all of the all of the things that we have been provided with or are we here to maintain it and are we here to make it make it better and are we here to enjoy it but at the same time replenish and and rejuvenate these resources that we've been giving and the ideas of permaculture really speak to that maintenance and that caretaker model um it's important to to, it's important to keep that in mind when we're thinking about these ideas of infinite growth infinite growth that really don't take that into consideration that really are only about resource extraction and a wealth um and a wealth hoarding that is really really has nothing to do positively with the planet. The Earth is going to be here for a lot longer than humans are going to be here. The fa- the thing that we need to remember is that the Earth will go on and on and on, and it's been it's been here a lot longer than humans have ever been here. Will humans be around to experience the Earth in thousand years? It's not really not really certain. But the Earth will be here in a thousand years, and we have to remember that and and keep that in mind as we go along. Yeah, and it's really up to our generation to start pioneering this blueprint for a sustainable human civilization, and that's that's why permaculture is such an important uh, important uh, technology and innovation because it is part of that grander story that if we don't start uh, embracing as uh, this generation, we're going to be in very dire straits in another 10 or 20 years. And you think that the austerity that's going on now is a problem. Just wait, you know, 10 or 20 more years of continued energy depletion and continued uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Economic austerity is going to look like a rosy picture. If you want to learn more about the extra environmentalist or get in touch with all of our archives of uh, episodes that are freely available to the world and the internet at large. Come over to our sh- come over to our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Head over to our Facebook account. Just type in Extra Environmentalist, and you'll be connected to a whole community of people who are interested around these ideas. We post up all sorts of links and stories about extra environmentalist like topics, and you can join the conversation and be a part of this fantastic group. We're on Twitter at X Environmental, and you can leave us a voicemail message like the one that you just heard here on the show at plus one for the country code of USA, 919-701-9872. If you want to leave us a Skype message, we are Extra Environmentalist, and you can find us there as well. Don't forget about our SoundCloud account where you can leave us a voicemail message using your smartphone or your computer. And all of our skits and 
clips of our shows are available on SoundCloud as well. So you can take these SoundCloud little bits of sound amazingness and drop them on your friends' walls, your friend, your parents' walls, or you know, you know, play them on your phone for your grandmother because she definitely wants to see you. If you really appreciate the interviews and the work that we've been doing, uh, but can't contribute economically, that is more than okay. If you want to say thanks, one thing that we really appreciate is everybody going on to our iTunes page on the iTunes store and just giving us a rating. You know, if, even if you think our show is horrible, just give us one star because having those ratings means a lot. Of course, we prefer to have all five stars, but we want you to be honest as well. Uh, one last plug to make here is our sound editor, Kevin, who is responsible for all these fantastic lectures on permaculture that you heard today. He actually has a YouTube channel, which is Sustainable Guidance, and that is youtube.com slash sustainable guidance. So go check it out. He's got all sorts of interesting media that he's created and we would love for you to see that as well. It's a wonderful day outside. The pond is flowing. Get out there and enjoy those tree sperm. Hey, Seth and Justin. My name is Lukey calling from St. Paul, Minnesota. Just wanted to say thanks for the amazing content that you guys have put out there. I think it's changing a lot of lives. Um, I also wanted to say thanks for the amazing tunes and music that you put on there. Just wanted to make a recommendation. Um, the song is called Retrograde by James Blake, and it's a really interesting song and really even more interesting video um, that kind of suggests that uh, the world is in danger and can change at any moment. Even though they don't talk about uh, any kind of economic collapse or peak oil, I think that tone of the song kind of goes along with uh, that subject. So thank you very much and take care. Astronauts, particularly in the International Space Station, often say that much of their free time is filled with what they call Earth gazing, just staring out at the Earth. They can stare for hours because the changing scenery, the interactivity of the biosphere, all of this has an incredible aesthetic impact. The beauty of seeing Earth as a planet, as opposed to uh, being down here among it, is a, a, a wonderful experience to then start to get into what we call the, the big picture effect or the overview effect. I was flying cross country from the east coast to the west coast in the 1970s. And I was looking out the window. And as I was looking down at the planet, the thought came to me, anyone living in a space settlement or living on the moon would always have an overview. They would see things that we know, but we don't experience, which is that the Earth is one system, we're all part of that system, and that there is a certain unity and coherence to it all. And I immediately called it the overview effect. You do, from that perspective, see the Earth as a planet. You see the sun as a star. We see the sun in a blue sky, but up there you see the sun in a black sky. So yeah, it's, it's, it, you are 
seeing it from a cosmic perspective. We've been evolving from the beginning of civilization to a larger and larger perspective of life on the Earth. But the next natural evolution is understanding the life in space. That is, the fact that the Earth, as Buckminster Fuller used to famously say, is a spaceship, spaceship Earth. We are in space already. It's just that we haven't brought that into our perspective as we live here on Earth. The overview effect is simply the sudden recognition that we live on a planet and all the implications that it brings to life on Earth. This view of the Earth from space, the whole Earth uh, perspective, I think is the true symbol of this age. And I believe that what's going to happen is there's going to be a greater and greater interest in, in communicating this idea because after all, it's key to our survival. We have to start acting as one species with one destiny. We are not going to survive if we don't do that. We're seeing very clearly that if the Earth becomes sick, then we become sick. If the Earth dies, then we're going to die. People sense that something's wrong, but they're still struggling to go back and find out what the real roots of the problem are. And I think what we need to come to is the realization that it's not just fixing an economic or a political system, but it's a basic worldview, a basic understanding of who we are that's at stake. And a part of that is to come up with a new story, a new picture, a new way to approach this and to shift our behaviors in such a way that it leads to a sustainable approach to our civilization as opposed to a destructive approach. It's a fragile planet, and if we don't take care of it and we don't work together, um, then we are going to have bigger issues than we have now down the road. On a grand scale, that's, you know, we're basically all living in this one ecosystem called Earth, and everything that you do on one side of the ecosystem affects the other side. And that is a new way uh, uh, for living for most of humanity. We humans are responsible for ourselves. And if we are uh, endangering our future, then we've got to learn how to do it differently and to go forward into a sustainable period. And right now, uh, that seems very difficult, very difficult to see how it's going to be. But we've got to work on it. episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we'll be talking about the financialization of higher education and why you shouldn't go back to school. There are older students 
you know, who go who went to work for a few years and then went to graduate school, and they understood the open secret, which is that liberal arts graduate school is professional school to be a professor. Um, nobody told us that, the younger ones, and we had to kind of figure it out on our own. And a lot of us weren't particularly sure we wanted to be professors, so that was where the point came where you had to think about, do I really want to stay here? But the other side of financialization is a more sociological and cultural side, which is the way that ideas and meanings and sensibilities from finance are creeping into everyday life in a whole variety of ways. As we'll, we'll talk about, I think we can look to let education as a place where this is happening. Many of the world's politicians are realizing gross domestic product is no longer growing like it used to and delivering the numbers that they really like. That's why there's a new alternative indicator. Extreme GDP! Extreme! That's right. Now GDP is taken to the extreme with Extreme GDP! Take those numbers to the next level with Extreme GDP! Nuclear meltdown! 15% extreme GDP growth. Fracking the moon. 170% GDP growth. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for hydro fracking the moon. Extreme. Drone strike or stimulus plan. Extreme GDP growth. Exploit Africa. Extreme GDP. Oh, hello there. Is that a giant robotic Godzilla smashing cars? No, that's a giant economic stimulus destroying vehicles and generating opportunities for growth. Extreme GDP, 100% growth. And so we recognize the importance of extreme GDP to our nation's economic health, and that's why we are announcing today a new economic stimulus policy. It is called Crash for Clunkers. What we want is everybody to crash their cars, and then they will have to buy new ones, stimulating the auto industry. It is a very important policy to make sure that our auto industry continues growing. Crash for clunkers, extreme GDP. And so the important thing is that all of you will be receiving in the coming weeks a special Crash for Clunkers stimulus helmet. It will go on your head and make sure that you are not injured in the crash fatally because we need very expensive life support procedures in your hospitals to be able to continue growing the economy. Rising healthcare costs, extreme GDP growth. Lay's potato chips, extreme GDP. Everybody goes to jail, extreme GDP. The prison sector is one of the most important employment sectors of our economy. Extreme execution. There are over 7 billion opportunities for infinite extreme GDP growth on our planet currently. Let's get out there and make that extreme GDP growth happen. Hey, Daddy, is that a tractor you have for our farm? No, son, that's a giant combine that will destroy all life on this planet. Extreme GDP growth. Throw your computer out the window and run over it with your car. Extreme GDP increase. 
I think it's time to put Grandma into a nursing home. It's time to put Grandma into a Smash Derby. Extreme GDP. And as you'll see, our government policy is now moving forward with uh, new alternative economic indicators. In the wake of the late breaking news this evening that an economic paradigm has died and the world is in mourning that an economic paradigm has died, uh, we go live to hell where we speak with the Prince of Darkness about how he plans to maximize the growth and output of the netherworld realms. But first, the weather. Daddy, can I have a glass of water? No, you can have this glass of magma that when you drink, we will generate lots of extreme GDP growth. 